this this is what that cowboy said to me lips peckers and assholes they're all you're gonna meet along the way lips peckers and assholes society gets worse every single goddamn day welcome to the pure meat pure gold show i'm your host alex peelander and coming at you from vnnforum.com, Alex Linder 5 on Twitter. As we try to every Wednesday, sometimes it gets postponed to Thursday. This is podcast number 009. We call it the Hot Dog Podcast for short. The Pure Meat Pure Gold Show for formal. And today. We're going to talk about uh, just one thing. We're going to talk about Russell Kirk and conservatism. Two or three different little areas. We're going to talk about Russell Kirk, the man, and we're going to go over some points I noted from his book about higher learning or academia in the the post-war period, uh, World War II up to the later 70s. The book was written in 78. And then we're going to talk about some of his 10 principles of conservatism, kind of go over those and look at them from all different angles. And that will be today's show. A little more Radio Astina-like, if you've ever uh, heard me speak on those, which concluded back around 2008, six years ago. Uh, they're at RadioAstina.com. And all these shows are in a sticky thread at VNNForum.com in the uh, general section up at the top. If you're ever looking for them, the very first post we got all, this is, like I said, the night's show number 009. There's going to be a bunch least one a week, sometimes more. And let's see, where are we? First, let's do a little update on VNN. Okay, we've got it's kind of a kind of a subdued day here in uh, here in the Nemo. It's a little bit gray, a little bit overcast. We have still not had any any great weather for more than a couple of days. I spent most of last week digging out a garden, and man, that's exhausting. I'm still a little physically uh, a little physically. What's the word? Just a little drained by that experience. Even even now, days later, I even dug out like a mulch box. A couple feet into the earth. Filled it with some brown and green brown is the way you're supposed to do it. And the internet's fantastic for looking up stuff. Finding out how to do it. So, a little subdued in that regard when the sun's not out. But, uh, anyway... VNN News, let's see. Uh, Craig Cobb now out of jail, awaiting his, I guess, probation officer to sign off on his moving back to Missouri. That's what I hear. And we have a Craig Cobb thread, of course, at our forum. You're welcome to check out. Uh, We're concluding a donations drive. We have a bill every quarter. And comes due on the 15th thanks to those who've donated if you want to donate send it to me uh alex lender at post office box 101 kirksville missouri 63501 cash checks money orders it all works never had any problem with mail tampering or anything like that if you want to donate electronically contact me via pm on the uh, on the forum 
Also, I wrote a column, my, my weekly column on languages up. I think I've done uh, probably, I must be getting near to about 10 of those. Covered a bunch of stuff, and I even have I even have more for next week. I had run all the way down, but I still have the words from Kirk that I'm going to discuss. I thought I would do. I always think I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and I always end up writing so much that I have to put off a fair amount of it. And I was going to do, I was only able to get through David Foster Wallace this week. Say only able, but there's a whole bunch of words, many of them you've probably never heard of. It's a good way to increase your understanding, and uh, I really enjoy writing about that stuff almost more than just about any other topic. And I try to do a mix of new words, words you might not be familiar with, sometimes some neologisms, and also politically uh, political words. The one I covered this week was uh, sensitivity, that concept, as it applies to matters political, kind of in the same vein as tolerance which I've discussed other places. And like I've said, I planned originally to purely focus on language rather than the political use of it, but it, it's impossible to avoid, and why would I want to avoid it anyway? I wouldn't. So I, that, was, that was a misconception on my part that was soon cleared up in the actual task of writing it. The task, the labor, the joy of writing it. Writing is not particularly fun. But having written something good is an enduring joy. That's one of the great things about writing is that it's forever. If you come up with some string of words, it will be remembered long after you personally are forgotten. As the next successful blob of jism takes your place upon the terrestrial earth. But anyway... So the on language column is up. I got a bunch of other stuff that's here and there. And like I said, I've been, uh, I was really focused on gardening last week and wrapping up the social season here in the Nemo, which like all highly advanced nations or locales focuses on the hunting of the turkey. And that wrapped up Sunday, the 11th here. The hunters that I know got one turkey. We cooked it in good health. We ate it. It was 23 and a half pounds. We carted it up to the, taxidermist and sold them the skin in exchange for their rendering it which in rendering it can be pretty much of a hassle to, to cut it all up but uh everything turned out pretty good so back to normal now got the garden all installed seedlings doing pretty well got a bunch of other stuff planted we'll see how it comes out good spring stuff now we got a little bit of the spring wane back to the 60 40 degree weather this week i prefer the 70 80 degree weather myself but I, I imagine we'll be back to that. We had a little taste of it, but I guess we'll get back to it probably next week. Anyway, good time to think about Russell Kirk and to go over conservatism and get some background in the idea of what the masters and the, old, the older intelligent thinkers thought about the nature and limits of government and what they thought about society and uh, compare and contrast that with some of the racialist views. So that's what we're going to do today. But we'll uh, we'll start by talking about uh, Kirk himself. Now, how long will this podcast take? I don't know. You know, there's one sure thing. The reason that I always try to speculate is just purely for your own. I try to be helpful to you when I say that. But I'm not helping you because I'm always wrong. And I always think it's going to go short. Or often think it's going to go short. It never goes short. At most, it would be most of an hour. Looking back on the pattern that I've established over the years, usually one hour 42 minutes seems to be about where I kick off. Now, I, I 
think it will be shorter than that today, but I don't know. It might not be. So whenever I say it's going to take this or that long, it doesn't mean anything. Because <laughs> if I get going, I'm sure as hell not going to stop. And if I couldn't get going, why am I doing this in the first place? If I didn't like to talk, why am I doing this? If I didn't have something to say, why am I doing this in the first place? So all those, uh, sometimes I have my physical ups and downs, and you'll hear it reflected in my voice. And that's the only reason I, I ever don't record stuff. It's not that hard to record physically. It's kind of annoying because i got to hold the mic until I, until I rearrange my setup. But other than that, I really enjoy talking about this stuff, lecturing about it, monologuing about it, thinking about it. I think a lot about Kirk, and I think a lot about Burke. And I think about, about how they were wrong and how they're right. You know, just to set the context, maybe I've talked about this before, but imagine back to 1982, and here's me, and it's lunchtime. I go to the public high school skyline in Salt Lake City, and oh, goody, the new National Review should be out. So I go and get my lunch, which is, you know, a Coke and a bag of Skittles. And I scuttle off to the library. I don't think they, you know, they don't allow you to, I don't remember eating the library, but I had, that was my little lunch, you know, so I would grab it and I'd go to the newsstand they had in the Skyline uh, Library, and, it, you know, this is in Salt Lake, and still recall thinking, gee, what will my future hold sitting at the tables there, looking out the skylight windows and seeing Mount Olympus in the background where I lived. That's the name of one of the Uinta Mountains that ring Salt Lake along with the Ochres on the uh, the Ochres are on the western side the Uintas are on the eastern side Mount Olympus is kind of one of the bench areas one of the richer areas of Salt Lake very nice place where we lived and you know looking out the window and seeing the snow up in the slopes hopefully a nice blue sky Utah's extremely dry air sitting there and reading National Review I'm thinking, God, I'd like, where, where do you meet people like this who know these words, like John Simon uses or Eric Von Kunelt Lading or, you know, the proprietor himself, William F. Buckley. Where do you, where do you find people who are interested in this stuff and know about it? And think about it. This is the pre-internet age. Now you can find all that. But back then, all there was was paper. There were one or two magazines. At that point, I don't even think I knew about the American Spectator, which was even more to my taste because it was giant. It was a big, huge tabloid-sized and it had lots of satire, humor, all kinds of words I'd never come across. And to a certain type of mind, this is an absolute ambrosia. If you're a young budding intellectual, you think about things. This is this is what there was if you weren't a leftist. If you're a leftist, of course, I suppose the whole world seems made for you, at least the world of public schools and the dreary demand for equality and Every gr group is hostile to every other group, and they're all competing, and white whites are evilly dominating. That wasn't such a big theme back then. It was there, but it was more of an undercurrent, or it was less overt and obnoxious than it is today. And really, obnoxious is the wrong way to put it. Threatening. Overtly threatening is the way it is today, far more than it was uh, back then in the early 80s, now that we've progressed the disease has progressed another, you know, 92, 2002, 2012, another 30 plus years. But eventually when I went to D.C. and would work at the Spectator and work for Evans and Novak, you know, I would meet some of these people, you know, and went to National Journalism Center, sort of a 12-week training program they had there. I would meet some of these people who, there's a whole class of people who came of age and they read right-wing material and maybe they were intellectuals without 
fully knowing or understanding it. This is where they learn stuff. If their parents weren't that way and didn't talk to them about this stuff, this is where they found their first budding community or, gee, these people are interested in the same things I am. And even though I go to a fairly good public school by Utah standards anyway, you know, no, no one really knows or cares about this stuff. You talk about it, there's, there's just no, there's no milieu or context there. And so this is where you first stimulate and whet and satisfy your appetite for matters intellectual and right-wing is in these publications. And this was true all during, I would say, the 70s and the uh, the 80s. And this was before National Review was completely taken over by the, the social wonk Jews, the neocon warmongers, and it was much more concerned about things literary and philosophical than it was this direct, blunt, obvious, rather stupid, flat, narrow, obnoxious, really, truly leftist, egalitarian, like I say, warmongering, more than any other thing characterizes it, obnoxious. You can't ever disagree with them. They're, they're going to consign you to the same ideological hell camp that the left would. If you don't support endless endless wars for Israel, you know, in, in researching for talking about Kirk, I was reading through his stuff, and I I forgot that uh, he 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 died. You know, where is it here? Let me see. He died in 1994, so right when all this these uh, obviously before 911, but into into the Gulf Wars, and even then, at the very end of his life, and the tail end of his career. Even when he was a highly respected figure, he made the statement that put him afoul of the neocons that, you know, they sometimes forget that the capital of the U.S. isn't Tel Aviv, or they seem to act like the capital of the U.S. is Tel Aviv. And, of course, Midge Dexter, Midge Dexter, who's the wife of Irving Kristol, who's the godfather, the founder of neoconservatism, which is basically Jewish communists in New York who became more conservative for foreign policy reasons in the early 70s maybe late 60s denounced him the same way they would me you know as a, as a horrible evil anti-semite and said something that's utterly utterly terrible and kirk was a big religious believer and associated conservatism with transcendence and christian morality and basically thought western civilization and christian christianity were the same thing identical inseparable and we'll treat Kirk as a smart guy, but certainly not infallible by any means. Everything that he said, almost everything that he said can be seriously questioned. And while I respected him and thought he was right as I was growing up, I've subsequently learned enough that I, I feel I can uh, make a fairly plausible case against many of his points. And in, in fact, I've, although I've always thought of myself as a conservatism, mostly because I knew I wasn't a leftist, because I could tell that the things a leftist promote are just something that anyone intelligent would laugh at out of the box because they're ridiculous. Still yet, maybe I'm not a maybe I'm not actually a conservative because I do believe more in good uh, <laughs> organizational reform among humans is possible. I probably believe more is possible than than Kirk would or most conservatives would. And I'm less concerned. I don't believe in transcendence or uh, afterworlds. And he pretty much defines conservative. He defines conservatives to fit exactly what he thinks. 
So what he thinks is conservatism. And yet he's capacious enough to include different atheists he calls conservatives. Or I guess who have, like the poets, they have elements of their thought are consistent with conservatism. Perhaps we'll get into a little of that. But as I said, we're going to cover the man, then we're going to look at his book, and then we're going to look at his 10 principles of conservatism. And that, that will be today's show. This is show number nine. And so, the key here is, this is sort of the guy who gave shape and form and coherence to modern conservatism. That is sort of post-FDR conservatism in America. So he would be considered one of the intellectual giants, and he's kind of the guy who, maybe, I don't know if resuscitated is the right word, but he's the guy who brought all the acclaim and clamor to Edmund Burke as the father of modern conservatism. Edmund Burke was a Irish English Irish Anglo he had both Catholic and Protestant background roots as sort of a lawyers lawyers man and then a uh, a statesman member of parliament uh who probably his most famous work is Reflections on the Revolution in France this would be the first sort of modern radical revolution in which the rationalists, the conservatives are very anti-rationalist. They don't like people thinking they can sit down and rewrite society by scribbling stuff out on a paper and then turning it into reality. The sort of the Hillary Clinton mentality. We're just going to take health care and just totally revise it. Pure our rationalist ideas rather than look at what it is and try to modestly reform it at best. Uh, Burke would have been... The, Burke wrote a very, very eloquent, very extraordinarily well stated chock full of memorable lines uh, I guess you would say book or at least essay or at least reaction to what was going on in France and the horrible radicalism that saw you know all the the entire throne and altar just slaughtered in the name of these Jacobin revolutionaries who were operating in the name of reason and the will of the people and who were taking traditional French arrangements and simply creating very rationalist structures like, well, France, instead of going by, you know, the natural divisions in the land or whatever, we'll chop it up into arrondissements and just sort of mechanically, very mechanically versus organically dividing up society as fit their reason, yet wasn't really rational. And this is the kind of thing that the conservatives are very much against. They don't, they don't, they're very untrusting of, of, these radical, quick, bloody solutions that are that are going to bring progress, and they have the better of the argument. Although there are problems with what they say, and there are psychological tendencies that the types that are attracted to conservatism turn out to be the types that are a little bit too passive, a little bit too "it is God's will" e for my taste, which is why I don't number among them. Although I appreciate the intellectual backing they've given to my understanding of what man is and what man's government can achieve on this earth. And I think many can and should feel that way. That's why I upgrade nationalists, racialists in particular, and say you need to have an intellectual understanding of the limits of government and what man, what man is and what he's, poss what he's capable of. And the problem in white nationalism is people just think, well, we just get our guys into power and then there won't be any problems. It doesn't really work like that. It's a foolish, indeed a childish belief that 
big government is fine as long as it's operated by the right people. That is that is absolutely wrong. Quite wrong. We only need big government. The only thing the whites really need is collective defense from people who are attacking them as a racial group. And that, to me, does seem a, a task for a central government. But we'll uh, we'll get into that as we go along. Let's see. Eh. Okay, part one. Burke the Man. Now, Burke the Man is basically a Michigan man. He went to Michigan State. He went to Duke for his master's. And then he went to St. Andrews in Scotland and got a Ph.D. So he's a man of letters. He's a man who wrote not just nonfiction books and probably the most famous book the the conservative mind that's one of the main sort of intellectual surveys of modern conservatism and that's the one you're always pointed to if you want to understand what conservatism is but he also wrote ghost stories a little bit like gk chesterton kind of in that mold i've not actually read his fiction i believe from what i read he he wrote a uh, i think something like three novels and about 22 short stories he came from Michigan. He pretty much stayed there his whole life. One thing I learned today that I was not aware of, he would not drive or, or uh, he would not drive or had nothing to do with cars. He hated them very much like the Southern agrarian traditionalists, but perhaps even more so the Southern agrarians were a collective of uh, a bunch of Southern intellectuals who wrote kind of anti-road, anti-car, anti-modernity positions back in the 20s and 30s when we were first kind of turning into a nation technically and commercially as opposed to politically and they they didn't like that the the way that creating connections between communities via via good functioning roads they didn't really like the effects that had and the effects it has is of creating a sort of a uniform national culture along with the rise of national advertising campaigns national brands before that, there weren't that many national brands. So the transportation and communication make possible. They're kind of pro-nationalist because they, they but in the sense of they, they unify and homogenize everything simply because it's easier to find out about other people and it's easier to get to where they are, you see. And today we feel that same effect, but globally. Now, to me, everything they say can be true, but what are you going to do? Are you going to reject? I, I think the upside of, of good roads and communications is, I think it's greater than the downside. The downside should be noticed, but the upside is greater. How I, I, I just look at the internet, for example, which is, which is in line with this. I would have benefited hugely from the internet if it had been around when I was 10 years old instead of when I was, you know, 25. I would have learned a heck of a lot of things a lot sooner. So you don't really see conservatives showing appreciation for the upside of technical progress as much as you might in my opinion in my opinion the upside outweighs the downside and i say that without being a progressive to them they have doubts i mean even to the extent that i don't know about the agrarians but apparently burke basically just holed up there in me michigan uh, with his wife and four daughters and he wouldn't use a car or at least he wouldn't drive he called cars jacobins Jacobins were the radical revolutionaries we just discussed in France who uh, killed off the uh, the kings and the 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 ancien regime, the old old elite. So this is this is his mentality. He likes things local, decentralized, and 
part of a community and basically a lot of what you've heard from me will ultimately come from people like Kirk or from people that Kirk cited like Burke which I've not only read what Kirk said about Burke I've read Burke himself and beyond simply his reaction to the French Revolution but these are a lot of the ideas that inform my own solution political solution for what we need now and why I'm not a, a national socialist and why I believe in decentralized local government. And I, I think I really like the principle of subsidiarity, which may be Catholic or not, which is that problems need to be solved at the right level, like brushing your teeth. That's an individual problem that you need to solve by brushing your teeth yourself. It's not a problem that's best solved at the state, the town council level, or the national level, you know. But so often we hear, well, you know, on the X number of cavities each year, we need to have a national tooth commission and send out teeth commissars uh, to make nightly checks to ensure that all people are brushing their teeth when they should. You know, that's kind of the different mentality. Subsidiarity would say, well, that that's a problem for the individual. And I draw it to an extreme, but only to a very slightly less extreme is, is socialized health care, which has a notorious record, but racialists, who can't seem to grasp that the government that lies about what it's doing with race and, and how good it is, it also lies about how good it is to have socialized health care. They, they can't seem to grasp that it doesn't, government doesn't stop lying when it starts, stops talking about race. It keeps lying. Everything that big government does is an attempt to justify its existence and to provide a pretext for expanding its power. That's what r racialists generally don't understand this when they come from a non-intellectual background and they simply haven't done the reading and they're not very sophisticated. They only know the facts about race because they've lived around niggers and they've seen that it doesn't work. But they tend to fall for a lot of this other stuff. I'm talking about about half the crowd here. About half probably feels like me. And half feels the other way. But half may be trying to cater to me. So we got to add a little, uh, <laughs> throw another 10% on the other side. There's not enough learning and understanding. We need more intellectual people. We need more people who read. We need more people who think. We need more people who can act faithfully and consistently and reasonably with regard to what they know. Simply to create organizations of intelligent and loyal people bent on ends worth worth pursuing and pursued rationally in a way that is likeliest to afford them success or the chance of success. Burke the man. Let's see. What, what, I think it's important to notice. Notice his name, uh, Kirk. That's a Scottish name. It usually means, like in German, Kirke means church, and I think it may mean church in Scottish too. He's, a, he's sort of a round-faced man, not much of a neck, an owl-faced man, not from a super distinguished background. His father was in, in railroads. So that's where he grew up. He went to Michigan State. He grew to really dislike it. In his book, he denounces Brummagem U and Behemoth U. That's what he really lamented in his book about academia we're going to talk about or talk about selections from, that what should be a college is, is a few hundred people or even just a few dozen people, serious senior scholars leading them, and the young people really want to be there, really want to learn, are the serious younger scholars. And together they form a community of people bent on furthering their intellects, developing their intellects, furthering their intellects, furthering their moral development, 
also intellectual means to ethical ends trying to create good people good long seeing people per what we discussed two shows ago Plato's idea that the that virtue and wisdom are the ends of education and as far as I can see Kirk takes that for granted and doesn't really question it nor am I really questioning it either sounds good doesn't it as opposed to narrow technical training or or simply stocking people with facts about stuff now the the purpose of it is to it is ultimately utilitarian to have a mass of people who don't overreact to everything. Overreacting is feminine. You see and feel what's right in front of you more strongly than its longer-term effects. That's why you don't want women running things. You want men running things because they're naturally less like that. The better men are able to see farther and longer. They're able to see that what's up, what's tastes good up front, like sugar, is ultimately destructive in the long term to your body. And all the nicey-nicey stuff, you know, compassion for single mothers or whatever, they're able to see the longer-term effects. Well, yes, if you subsidize it, you're going to have more of it and ultimately more misery. And so they, they're more apt to enforce what, what they know to be the right way to do things, whereas the females are likelier to overreact out of sort of a mother's love taken out of the proper sphere of its family and extended to society that's why politics is a proper concern of men rather than women now a good portion of women can come to understand this intellectually i mean there are only a few iq points dumber than men on average though that fact be hidden by the media nevertheless politics is the proper sphere of men and any women who play in it should be treated and regarded as men i've always said and believe but i'm not a gentleman now, Russell Kirk was born in Plymouth, Michigan. He was the son of Russell Andrew Kirk, a railroad engineer. I was going to say a funny thing. Kirksville was named after another guy named Kirk, named Jesse Kirk, and they're having a setting. They're resetting his stone here. He was a tavern owner, and I believe he's, he's supplied the surveyors with some, some whiskey and some steaks, and in exchange they, uh, they named the town after him, something like that. Jesse Kirk, founder of Kirksville presumably a scotch-irish type like many around here and uh they're resetting his his stone this sunday here in nemo that's the kind of local note that someone like russell kirk over in mecosta michigan would appreciate you know organic ties local stuff traditions prescription all these words the ordering of the soul properly leads and the proper ordering of society or his great concerns again that's also taken from plato these are things to think about and if you have a disordered soul why that will show up in your politics demands for as churchill said of the communists you know impossible equality arrested development now This, this is even an interesting point, something he said. Kirk laid out, a, I'm reading this from the Wikipedia, Wikipedia page, Kirk laid out a post-World War II program for conservatives by warning them, a handful of individuals, some of them quite unused to moral responsibilities on such a scale, made it their business to extirpate the populations of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. We must make it our business to curtail the possibility of such snap decisions. So you could see that to a Jew neocon already, 
long, long before their current bouts of warmongering, Kirk evinced the, me the, the mentality <laughs> that, that put prudence and, and being careful and reflecting on things above almost all else, certainly above lying to draw us into wars. So th he's a traditionalist conservative. Today they would tend to call him more paleoconservatives. The people that he wrote for at the very end and, and who would carry on his tradition would be more the paleoconservatives than anyone. Their side lost the struggle for the kind of heart and soul and main organs, main media organs of conservatism back in the early 80s under Reagan. When they had uh, their main scholar, Emmy Bradford, was uh, cashiered in a neocon stuck in his place as uh, Reagan didn't stand up for him. That's a battle from three decades ago, but since then the neocons have dominated National Review and uh, the other uh, the other publications. Fox and today it would be not it would be the cable TV the neocons dominate, American Spectator, National Review, and uh, Fox News to the extent that uh, the, the magazines are I don't I don't read them I mean even the one I used to work at I don't read and uh, I haven't read National Review the one I originally liked for you know nearly 20 years just not interesting on every main point they've given in to the jews you know they they advocate folding and all the social stuff they don't cover literary stuff really at all and uh the rest you know just endless warmongering endless endless garbage about trying to undermine these various different countries with revolutions uh, as ukraine and who cares it's not, it's not interesting except to, to be taken as a threat Okay, now, okay, let me read just a little from uh, his life section so you have a good good sense. This is the, the number one conservative intellectual of the 20th century. And let me preface it by saying I highly recommend you read The Conservative Mind. That's the starting place for understanding not just what conservatism is, at least as outlined by Kirk. There are people who would disagree, but he's accepted as one of the best definers by pretty much everybody. And his point is conservatism is not an ideology. It's not a rigid set of dogma. It, it's simply something that has reflects a disposition, a mindset, and a set of principles. There's a set of principles that most conservatives would adhere to. But it's not a hardcore ideology like communism. It's more a way of taking the world and I, I what I take from this and I agree in this sense I truly am a conservative the way of appreciating and trying to understand things and reflect on them and touching them very gently or tenderly instead of just assuming you can you can make them radically different which is a very childish and dangerous attitude because you're not the first person who ever existed your thought has been had by other people before Assume that what is there is not so easily changed as it might appear. Indeed, it's often seemed to me that's almost the essence of maturation is realizing that things are the way they are for a reason. And the best you can do is to hope to understand why that is. Now, actually, I've gotten a little beyond that point of view even, but uh, that's a very good starting place. The conservatives, I think because of their, generally because of their religious faith, are a little too passive, ultimately. The Catholics in particular are a little too passive for my uh, 
for my taste and for my belief about what is possible. Government is very good at killing people. And there's almost nothing else it's good at. But we shouldn't use the fact that it's not good at anything else to hide the fact that it is good at keeping power and killing people. And so when you start talking about transcendence, the, the thing I ultimately dislike about conservatism and why I might not qualify as a conservative is, is the, the mystical. It, it's always threatening to trail off into mysticism. Everything is justified because some higher power wanted it that way. And I really, I really don't agree with that way of looking at things. I don't think it's right. It doesn't correspond to anything in my soul. I don't even, I don't feel any kind of clang. I don't feel that that corresponds with what I know by an inner light to be accurate or real. It's quite the reverse, in fact. The longer I go, the less I, I have any, any kind of idea that anything other than human will and tornadoes is what makes things happen. But let me stop interrupting myself for a second and just read you a little more about Kirk. Th my point is this is the number one guy. This is the guy you want to know. This is the guy you want to read. Understanding Kirk, and you'll understand the philosophical basis of anyone halfway serious who's writing as a, as a professional conservative. People like Buckley and people like Will. George Will. These are, these are, again, these are names from the 80s you don't hear so much from now since Buckley's dead. But, but this is kind of the background formation of a lot of the right-wing intellectuals like me who came of age during that time, whether we graduated to a different point of view uh, or, uh, or, or what. But, uh, okay, let's see. Thereafter, okay, so... Upon completing his studies, and remember, he's like the first guy to ever be awarded a doctorate from uh, St. Andrews in Scotland, which is kind of his ideal of a uh, of an of a, of an a genuine higher learning. You know, a limited number of colleges that together might form a university, but they're, as I described, they're separate, smallish or smaller groups that of scholars, and they. Uh, there's not a lot of riches or a lot of other stuff to do, and they're focused on study. It's the point of college. It's not. It's not to have tens of thousands of people, as he he denounced Michigan State as a cow college, who are going there to learn, you know, how to how to make a better pizza or how to landscape or you know physical education. They're not. They're doing serious intellectual pursuits among other people who are similarly inclined. That's what a college is, not not what they become which is mere giganticism or gigantism or uh, bureaucratic empire building. So upon completing his studies, Kirk took up an academic position. And again, he, so he goes to Michigan State. He goes to Duke for his master's, Duke down in uh, North Carolina. Then he goes to St. Andrews and gets his Ph.D. Then he comes back to his home state of Michigan and teaches at Michigan State. He resigned in 1959, and he covers this in his book having become disenchanted with that university's academic standards, rapid growth in student numbers, and emphasis on intercollegiate athletics and technical training at the expense of the traditional liberal, liberal arts. This is the thing. If only 10% or so of the population, at most 15%, is capable of college-level intellectual material, then what has to happen if you're going to suddenly, as the U.S. did after World War II, let in tens of thousands of students to college? something has to give what gives always is standards 
the standards drop, you have these large campus communities of anonymous people, kids leaving their parents, they get lost. That's why they get into drugs and drinking and what have you. That's why they wind up getting wasted and falling off their balconies because they don't have any orientation because they're not genuine intellectual seekers in the first place. So they don't belong in college. They belong working in a job or doing something else, but they don't belong in college. These are not, they are colleges in name only. And this again is a massive distortion of the economy through the media and the central government, which is backing all of this, making it possible, facilitating it with these giant student loans. And then, of course, wherever federal money goes, federal control follows, and you have to follow all their leftist principles if you even accept students who have so much as a loan from the feds. So that's how they achieve control, and they get, it, they get involved at every level, not just the college level. They radically expand it at the college level, but then they also get involved at the K-12 level, even from the feds getting involved in stuff that ought to properly be local matters or matters of private instruction. Again, the founders weren't raised up in public schools. The founders were taught by private tutors. That's the best way of doing it. So so anyway, so he resigns. He goes back to Michigan State and teaches, and then he resigns in 59 because, he's you know, it's all about sports. They're dropping the standards. They've got far too many students. Thereafter, he referred to Michigan State as Cow College or Behemoth University. And then later in life, he taught one semester a year at Hillsdale College. And that that was a, a famous place in Michigan that was famous because it was one of a, two or three colleges, I think Grove College might have been another, that didn't accept any federal money, so hence it could retain its private standards. But even there, I think they may have been eventually taken over by neocons. Um, but I've forgotten all those debates. They're a couple. They're a couple decades old now. I know there was a big scandal with one of the one of the uh, leaders of Hillsdale. But Hillsdale's a very famous name on the right of a sort of conservative liberal arts. One of the rare conservative and intellectual colleges. Another one would be the uh, where my sister went, which uh, used to be Claremont Men's College, but it was a C, it turned into CMC. And that's famous as a conservative college, but that's totally neocon dominated. And that's one of the five colleges or, that form Claremont Colleges. Mine was Pomona. CMC has turned out a lot of, uh, oh, not a lot, but it's turned out various neocon writers and uh, congressmen out of, out of Southern California. And that's one of the, one of the other uh, few known conservative outlets. That's where Harry Jaffa, this Jew, who's the Lincoln expert that the libertarians are always doing battle with, he's out of Claremont himself, assuming he's still alive. He didn't like it when I called him a troll. He had some nasty response to, to me calling him that. Not when I was there. That was later. That was a few years ago. He is a nasty little looking job of the hut Jew troll who, of course, like all conservatives, is, is Lincoln wasn't conservative. He was justifying Lincoln's nationalizing of a, a federalized country, you know, states' rights where the states were federated little republics. He's justifying Lincoln's claiming that the Union preceded the states, which is manifestly not true. It was a lie that Lincoln himself used, though, because what else is he going to say? <laughs> if, if he didn't have that, he would have to admit he were wrong, and the whole Civil War was wrong, which was, in fact, the case. Morally and legally, it was wrong. But, uh, you know... 
as Jews cast about to improve other people and foment revolution, Jew positive revolution throughout the world, they need intellectual backing and they have to just create a false history, a false narrative in the U.S. And since they control all the media organs, they're capable of doing that. The Jew left and the Jew right agree on the Lincoln myth, promoting racial equality, promoting the central state over the individual states. The U.S. going from these United States to the United States. Get it? So, anyway, so he leaves Michigan State. He goes back to uh, his ancestral home in Mecosta, Michigan. I'm assuming it's pronounced. Where he wrote the many books, academic articles, lectures, and the syndicated newspaper column, which ran for 13 years, in which he exerted his influence on American politics and intellectual life. In 1963, Kirk converted to Catholicism and married Annette Courtemanche. It would be a French sort of pronunciation. They had four daughters. She and Kirk became known for their hospitality, welcoming many political, philosophical, and literary figures in their Macosta home, known as Piety Hill, and giving shelter to political refugees, hobos, and others. Their home became the site of a sort of seminar on conservative thought for university students. Piety Hill now houses the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal. Now, that's, that's interesting. So here's this guy. He's living as a professor. All of a sudden, he gets married. He's in his early 40s, pops out four daughters, converts to Catholicism. And you could say Mecosta, Michigan, is, is a center of world culture because he lives there. Now, ironically, it's kind of the modern age with the Internet and such that makes, that makes it possible for you to be a, a functioning, bill-paying intellectual but they don't they don't put so much weight on that it seems to me not enough weight on it anyway anyway i recall seeing william f buckley went out there and courted him to write for national review and he agreed but basically he just did his thing from his home in uh, mecosta michigan a place i've never really heard of any other way i don't know how many people live there here's the thing i noticed though the interesting thing kirk declined to drive calling cars mechanical jacobins and would have nothing to do with television and what he called electronic computers. So that's that's fairly interesting. That that shows you his set of mind. Kirk was a contributor to Chronicles of of those are what I call the Faleo conservatives. Tom Fleming and the old goat, the Southern guy, forget his name. Kirk was a contributor to Chronicles. In 1989, he was presented with a pres- Presidential Citizens Medal by Re- by Ronald Reagan, even though Reagan. Uh, Emmy Bradford was the name. There was a whole dispute. Look that up if you want to know some of the background of where the neocons and the paleocons did their massive civil war. And the uh, neocons ousted the paleocons, who were left bitter and and disgruntled and griping on the side, while the neocons went on to foment all kinds of wars and utterly dominate the conservative movement and impose the same taboos the Jews impose wherever they land, which is anything against any kind of white racial thinking. But... uh. The conservatives, even though they were never hostile to racial, they were never particularly hostile to racial thinking. That is, if there had been a racial-oriented society, they would never have opposed it and would have found reasons to see that it was reasonable. It was never number one among their priorities. They've always been much more of a religious cast of mind. This is why this religious conservatism is politically useless. It's just, it's just, 
even if intellectually there are things, there are tendencies that can be reconciled or ways of looking at the world that are compatible with racialism, since what's more organic than, than a race? Literally, people who are genetically related and formed into clans and kins. Uh, nevertheless, they will never make that an overt ideological, or very seldom turn that into an overt ideological or even just merely aggressive political thinking. They, they simply and always prefer to go back to God. And this is kind of the, the Anglo-American way, and it's, it's not capable of opposing Jews, basically, is, the, is what the problem amounts to. And among the people descended from uh, Anglo-Americans, it was really, uh, among the conservatives anyway, Pierce figured all this out. But uh, Sam Francis is the only one of these conservative intellectuals who ever got fairly close to figuring out that, like, um, yeah, this stuff doesn't really work. And religious conservatism has no answer whatsoever for dynamic Jewish radicalism. Loxism, exism, anti-whiteism, whatever you want to call it. It has no answer for it. It simply isn't dynamic enough. It isn't intellectual enough. It isn't hard-charging enough. It isn't ideological enough. It isn't. It, it can say it's principled, but when, you, when your principle is prudent and, and kind of being passive and appreciating things, that, that can't cope with something hardcore and radical. It, it's very good. So this conservatism is very good at explaining why radicalism fails and what's wrong with it is a sort of distemper among whites, whereas it's a successful political strategy among Jews. It's kind of the way they are. Conservatism is not hard-charging enough. It is not biologically... It doesn't pay enough attention to... The attention it ought to pay to biology is paid to God and the, the various... the morally transcendent order and the rest of the mystical gibberish, as far as I'm concerned. Instead of taking into... And even from their point of view, they could look at it as we need to pay more and closer attention to the real world of created facts. Now, even in his principles that we'll get to, Kirk says that is that he he emphasizes the, a need to pay attention to the variety and mystery of life, and yet they don't do that. If they actually did that, that would be one intellectual pathway where they could justify paying much greater attention to race than they do. They just don't value it highly enough. They value their imaginary God uh, much more than they should. And that's why there's really no hope in them. That's one reason. There's no hope in them for finding the type of mindset and person and man that you need to oppose the Jews, the radical Jews. It has to come from some different place, you see. That's why you never saw people who successfully opposed the Jew, like Goebbels and, and Hitler, never talked about being Catholics or about Jesus. I mean, they might, he might make rhetorical use of God just the way I would or anyone would because, you know, it's something common to people. It doesn't mean you believe in it. But they would never ever go on about how, you know, Jesus wanted it to be. That's for, that's for low-rent Anglo-Saxon, Scotch-Irish, Southern, Southern-type people who basically aren't capable of understanding everything, and everything has to be put into the devil and the, and the angels doing battle. And they, that sort of retardation simply won't get anywhere. It's not good enough. It's not not good enough for prime time. And that's the source of my anti-Southern animus. It's just simply not good enough. It's not that I particularly dislike how those people live. I like elements of it, hunting and fishing and not needing support from other people and just doing your own thing. I appreciate that aspect of it, leaving others alone, being happy in your own skin. That's all good stuff. 
But when you're trying to fight a cohesive minority that intends to do your race in, you, you, and, and this race is known not only for its radicalism, but for its learningism, for its preference for books and reading and thinking and reflecting and looking and p- picking and making small variations and moving quickly. That's why I talk so rapidly. I'm trying to get people who are appreciate who like that kind of talk, rapid talk, rapid thinking. We don't belabor. We do belabor shit, but we put it in slightly different ways each time. So you're always getting something a little bit different, right? It's like those two guys in that movie. What was it? Where they're they're in Britain and they're they're doing a road trip and they're sitting at dinner. They're eating all these different restaurants and trying these different newfangled cuisines. And they start doing Michael dueling Michael Caine impressions, and they're each you know they rapidly back and forth, each adding a little slightly different element. It's great stuff. That's how that's how Jews are. That's what allows them to get ahead. That Larry Seinfeld esque, Larry David esque, picking at things, trying to understand what makes them tick. Leave leave the God and the rest of the horseshit aside. Let's just try to understand this stuff. Look at something from all angles, and see what we can, what's in it and what we can get out of it. We need more of that mentality among whites in order successfully to oppose the Jews. You understand. And that's what all, all of what I do ultimately is aimed at. Of course, if you don't see the same problem I do, or many of us do, then you, you won't see the need for a solution. But So the conservative mind, colon, from Burke to Santayana, was the published version of Kirk's doctoral thesis. This is kind of the foundational document of modern post-war conservatism, tying us back to Burke's criticism of the French Revolution a couple hundred years earlier in the 1700s, all the way up through 1950 or so. Anyway, that's an overview of the man. So he's from Michigan. He's got a Ph.D. He went to Scotland. He likes the transcendent order and order in the soul, and his writings are primarily concerned with that. And pedigree and prescription and providence, where things come from, uh, giving due consideration to our ancestors. And while acknowledging that, that we do need to change as a means of preserving ourselves, which comes from Burke, who he alone, more than anyone else, resuscitated as kind of the father of neoconservatism from the uh, 1700s, when the, the late 1700s, uh, 1790s, when uh, France was going through its revolution. So, Burke, Kirk, their names rhyme, and they're to be they're to be taken uh, uh, together. Let's say. Now we're going to move to looking at different little clips from the book, part two of our our three parts. Okay, now what I'm going to do is read from page 51. And the idea here is just to grasp what a university is compared to what we think of it. Now when we say university today, we think of, say, Ohio State University, and we think of 100,000 people at Ann Arbor or at uh, Ohio State watching a football game and all wearing red or all wearing, you know, yellow or orange or whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> but that's not, <laughs> excuse me, that's not what a university actually is. Now, he actually praises, shortly before the part I'm going to read, he praises the New School for Social Research in the U.S. as a real university even though it was fairly leftist. But he says, uh, 
and he lectured there for a while so he so he knew somewhere i read he in in this book he ended up speaking at over 400 different universities so he had a pretty good sense of what was going on out there anyway he says the new school was a far cry from behemoth state university and that's kind of his generic smear word for what the modern university modern after 19 after world war ii had become behemoth state university alternately brummagem university the new school was a far cry from what behemoth state university from behemoth state university job certification center and matrimonial bureau i.e you know training people to get jobs why do you want to go to school oh i want to go to school to meet a husband i want to go to school to uh, get a good job he's denouncing those as proper motives for uh, going to school Behemoth State with a certain aloofness because I had spent some years at a center of learning that was still a farther cry distant, St. Andrews in Scotland. This is one of the smaller British universities. Now, again, this is the model he's, he's advising. He's saying this is what a true university is. This is what a true college is. This is what true higher learning is like, consists of, uh, is found here. This is one of the smaller British universities, though the oldest in Scotland and the least altered by modern circumstances. The undergraduates in their scarlet gowns stroll among massive ruins. The smashed hulk of the Gothic cathedral, the brown wreck of the castle where the Cardinal Beaton was dirked and pickled. Dirked is a uh, form of knife. The mile-long fortified walls of the vanished priory. I believe a priory is where the, uh, the monks live. The derelict little houses, most of them restored since my years there, near the derelict harbor. The world was not too much with one at St. Andrews, and as Samuel Johnson said, visiting the place, it was admirably suited for study. The silence and the sense of the vanity of human wishes that brooded over the university and town helped in this, and then, too, St. Andrews was wondrously inexpensive. There is no necessary opposition between aristocratic principles and student poverty. Tocqueville observed that the aristocrat is indifferent to his own material condition, when he finds himself poor because his opinion of other people and of himself is not determined by creature comforts. At St. Andrews in my time, the Chancellor was the premier duke in Scotland, the rector the premier earl, but most of the students subsisted upon rather slim scholarships or local authority grants, and many of the others were happily and unabashedly shabby beneath their red gowns. In Scotland, a thirst for real education long marked all classes. That actually dated back to the uh, 1700s and in itself would be an interesting subject to go into at some time because it showed how quickly a change could overtake a culture, which is something that, by God, white nationalism, the South, the Boers in South Africa could certainly benefit from learning from. But we'll leave that for another day and, and put that in there as an aside. There was a Scottish Enlightenment in which they suddenly turned to education and produced a mass of very highly educated people who were not just intellectually successful and philosophically, but were commercially successful too. So he says, in Scotland, a thirst for real education long marked all classes. And once upon a time there were farm laborers in Fife who held St. Andrew's degrees. But these, like the bookish farmers of old New England, have passed away, and the grants of the welfare state will not resurrect them. 
Samuel Johnson's remarks on poverty notwithstanding, penury does have its pleasures. The Garrett student at St. Andrews, I was one, eating very little, not only had better opportunities for study than has any student in the tremendous air-conditioned nightmare dormitory complexes at Behemoth U, but he also leads a more varied, interesting, and character-toughening life. It is good for a student to be poor. See, and he's contrasting a lot of these student ghettos where there's anonymity and alienation among the so-called students at, say, Ohio State or Michigan State or Michigan or whatever, that, where they have hundreds of thousands at their football games and they have tens of thousands, you know, uh, at their university. He's saying that, that that's not what a university is. He's saying it's good to be poor, to be quiet, to reflect, to think, and that's where genuine intellectual progress and development come from. Getting and spending the typical American college student, we move on to page 52, lays waste his powers. Work and contemplation don't mix. And university days ought to be days of contemplation. Fasting and reading, a student may see visions and be, in C.S. Lewis's phrase, quote-unquote, surprised by joy. The corruption of many American colleges and universities into training institutes, and notice that verbal construction, the corruption into, the corruption of many American colleges and universities into training institutes for material success has alienated hundreds of thousands of the better minds among our rising generation from even the awareness that a university education is supposed to be a contemplative process. Not a mere hurried business of bluffing and cheating one's way through innumerable courses crowned by a sham degree. So some do turn to transcendental meditation. And again, imagine when he's writing this in the, in the 70s after just having gone through the 60s. So some indeed do turn to a transcendental meditation taught by a guru instead of a professor. For St. Andrew's students in my time, vacation was the opportunity for long and serious reading in a remote college or perhaps for a cheap and independent roving about the continent. The St. Andrews student knew he was going to serve mammon soon enough without wasting his university years in washing cars or waiting on tables. And then on, then too, or he says waiting on table, not actually tables. And then too, the Scottish universities still expected their students to pass exacting examinations. At St. Andrews one year in my time, the professor of moral philosophy gave every one of his students the grade of failure. They came back at the end of the summer after intensive study to resit the examination, and he flunked them all again. At Behemoth U, such a professor would be gotten rid of, if possible. At St. Andrews, he was advanced to vice chancellor and principal. So again, you see, college is not about going there to get a business degree and, 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 and making more money. It's supposed to be about intellectual matters and genuine contemplation. And, and imagine how much more those students learn when they're told they failed. That's why... The better people are always more critical. They're not supportive. That's why I'm such an asshole. I've read stuff like this, and I understand it. I, it's not your job to be super complimentary of everything. You should expect that people do, A, try as hard as they can, B, are good and able to do what they claim they're a able to do, and C, you know, uphold the standard. If you don't uphold the standard, who will uphold the standard? No one. It won't be upheld. It won't even be acknowledged. If you fall far enough... You don't. You get to the point. You don't even. You don't even concede that standards exist, and we are at that point now. 
in very many areas of our society. And just to conclude, he concludes this chapter, but during the 60s, it would become abundantly clear that a great many students in American Europe, although not at St. Andrews, had come to hate the university. Inhumane scale, and in many cases, ugliness of the campus, had some part in this hatred. When such hatred prevails, obviously something is amiss, either with the university or with the students or with both. So a lot of his book has taken up criticizing the revolutionary activities, but he does have considerable sympathy for the anger of the students because they do, even if they don't understand why they're angry, he, he, he explains why it is, and it's what, what I just read, which is that these, are, these colleges are not designed the right way and they're not getting the right kind of people. They're getting too many people and they have the wrong missions, and thus they're not producing wise and virtuous men. They, they can't. They're producing gigantic classes that aren't even taught by professors because the other the other problem is the at the giant state schools teaching is is downgraded for research so the teaching is left to grad students often foreigners who can barely speak english and then when you're sitting in a in a giant amphitheater with 300 other students listening to some dude from pakistan who can or china who can barely speak english going back to your dorm where people are playing rap 24 hours a day and you're crammed in there, I mean, you begin to feel alienated many times. You feel like, what is the point of this? What am I doing here? Has anything been prepared for me or am I just sort of anonymously going through the motions like everybody else? And this is the problem. Now we'll turn to page four or five and look at a little what he says about the growth of of student populations after the the post-war period. So basically what happened was all these vets came back from World War II and there was a mad scramble to find through the GI Bill to let them into any college and there was a need to find professors to teach them and over time that eventually led to a glut of professors. But back then, first there was a shortage and they were madly scrambling then they realized what what tremendous growth opportunities there were in turning everybody into a college student. And that meant lowering standards. And he says, by 1953, at possibly the majority of American institutions of higher learning, the process of lowering standards was well advanced. So well advanced by 1953, he says. He says, and again, going to the local in particular, such was my situation at Michigan State in 1953, I being then a member of the staff of a general education scheme called the Basic College within MSC. Having been an undergraduate at Michigan State for four years, I entertained no high-flying notions of what academic standards there had been or could be. It was a representative land-grant college, originally of agriculture and applied science, rightly overshadowed by the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. He says uh, in his years it was dull enough, but genuine in its way. When I was a senior in 1940, there had been 6,000 students. By 1953, there were some 15,000. So from 6,040 to 15,000 in 1953, only 13 years later, that sort of thing is going on nationwide. He says an institution of even 6,000 students cannot well be a real academic community. 
Now we'll turn to page 68 and 69 and look at uh, what he says about essentially the feds. The feds, and again, we're talking from his perspective. Things are either local, Christian, private, free, traditionally American, or they're centralized. They're anti-Christian, and they're completely intolerant. And with the growth of federal power through through loans and other programs comes uh, this incredible control. He says... I believe that any society deprived of its religious convictions will become fiercely intolerant of minorities and of private opinions. And I do believe that such cleavages, that is, freedom of opinion and diversity of associations, are healthier than an enforced conformity to a humorless and dogmatic latter-day instrumentalism and positivism. And he's writing this in 1978. And so he's, he's, he's talking about the secular leftist progressive or post-christian i i think he's to me it's it's the same impulse that drives christianity drives the the post-christians they're going to create a perfect world although he would deny that that's uh that's christian but he's talking about how the feds are increasing and growing their power and it becomes becoming stifling of anything that's divergent they won't even literally let it go on if it doesn't conform to their way, so long as you take a dollar. And it's not even that you take dollars directly from them. That's that any student that you admit gets a loan or a grant has to adhere to the federal anti-white. Of course, he never once goes into the racial aspect of this in this book. This was probably, that's an interesting thing about this book. It's probably about the, the very last point at which you could write a book like this and not have at least a, a chapter, if not a, if not a, a third of it, or a whole huge section on race. 1978 is probably about the very end of that time because now it's totally race-obsessed. Then he's writing, they're about, you know, five years into serious affirmative action under Nixon. Okay, so... He says, the grand tendency of our age, this is page 69, the grand tendency of our age is toward concentration of power. Once concentrated, any power tends to suppress the slightest challenge to its supremacy. Boy, that seems true, doesn't it? And no form of monopoly is more oppressive than intolerant control over the mind and the conscience of the rising generation. Man, I think I think we we've, we've seen that demonstrated very very strongly. Increased federal increased federal funding of K twelve education. They really got their nose under the tent in the Lyndon Johnson years. I think nineteen sixty four or so. Before that, they didn't have so much to do with with local stuff, other than enforcing obviously uh, enforced race mixing. But I'm talking about in terms of dictating the content is is something we've seen in the last few decades that we saw less of before. Of course, even before even before that, though, you had the people who were taught it, teaching the teachers, the people founding and and uh, the the teachers' colleges who were promoting progressivist doctrines that uh, conduced anti-whiteism. But uh, all right, we'll find we'll find another little selection. Okay, now you've heard me talk a lot of times about believing your own your own bullshit. A cause is taken seriously when it. The people who advocate it, who hold it, actually act the way that they say they should act, actually act in line with their 
principles, with their spoken principles, become their lived principles. When they do that, they garner respect, even among those who are their enemies or those who disagree with them. And here, uh, just to reinforce that, of course, he doesn't use that term, believe their own bullshit. But he's talking about student radicals, and he's talking about how even amid their, their disrespect for official authority, say, you know, the various battles that went on in, in California, he said they did respect certain people like uh, Herbert Marcuse, the unconventional Marxist, as he terms it. And he says, uh, During these years I spoke at La Jolla, that's a rich suburb outside of San Diego, Spent a week there on the beach after uh, I graduated from Pomona, which was up the road in uh, uh, more near San Luis Obispo, near Claremont, California. During those years, I spoke at La Jolla to a group of young men who were students of the old Herbert Marcuse. This is, again, one of the Jews in Germany who was cashiered by Hitler and, and one of the main Frankfurt school people in the no space for the right type people who believes leftism ought to utterly dominate things. The unconventional Marxists. I found them civil and interested. They informed me. He's trying to say here that the students had respect for people like him and for people like Marcuse because they obviously were highly learned and they weren't just clowns. I found them civil and interested. They informed me that Marcuse and I agreed about some things, particularly about the futility of student activism as opposed to serious study. Marcuse was neither a lively man nor a lively writer. What did they see in him? What Kent discerned in Lear, authority. Marcuse's, to their eyes and ears, was the potestas magisteri, the authority to teach. Their friendliness suggested that they found something of that authority in me also. I suspect it did not so much matter to them what was taught as that it should be taught by a man who clearly believed in the truth of what he was saying. You see, he was someone who actually believed and lived by his own bullshit. That's why they respected the Marxist and the conservative alike. Had they come to me first, my politics of prudence, derived from Burke, would have satisfied them as well as did Marcuse's ideology, derived from Marx. Quote, he speaks as one having authority. That's what people hunger for, legitimate authority. And legitimate authority is demonstrated by someone who sticks to the same line over years, not someone who is flipping around from here to there and whatever, not someone who's motivated by money, not someone who is glib and just says stuff but doesn't actually live that same way. It all, if it all reinforces, then you have the potestas magisterium. And pardon me if I'm saying it wrong. I'm not learned in Latin. I know little Latin, I'm embarrassed to say, but uh, the authority to teach. I'll read that again. I suspect that it did not so much matter to them what was taught as that it should be taught by a man who clearly believed in the truth of what he was saying and who possessed some reputation for learning of a sort and originality of a sort. Had they come to me first, they probably would have liked my politics of prudence derived from Burke as much as they liked Marx's ideology derived from Marx. Their generation encountered few such the more intelligent of them looked up hungry and were not fed. See, that's what's missing. That's what I'm trying to supply by doing these podcasts. Some actual legitimate learning such as I didn't find in college. And I went to one of the, I went to one that he actually praises in terms of the setup and that it's like St. Andrews and that it's not millions of people. It's a few hundred people. 
everywhere the authority had withered. And again, this is the 60s revolutions. If you may remember in California at Berkeley, it was do I am a, you know I'm a student. Do not fold, spindle, mutilate. They were talking about the old computer cards and how they were treated as anonymous, faceless consumers. And that's how these colleges came to see it as their the student is just a number. He's not someone who requires this knowledge and this learning for the sake of his own soul and, and, and to make him someone who's wise and virtuous, but merely as, a, oh, you know, we can get this and this much more grant money and we can expand our jobs and titles and buy more lands and set up new giant buildings for, for new classrooms and teach pizza management and every other subject. No, that's not what a university is. That's not what the students want. The students knew something is wrong, and they're groping toward the light, trying to find out why they're not getting what they actually want, the ones who are true and real and vital among them. The rest are just confused and alienated, and, you know, what do they turn to? They turn to drink, of course, sex. And and that's actually, ironically enough, that's the kind of stuff that people like Marcuse were advocating. And yet in this specific instance, Marcuse is saying you'll have a greater effect on society in the long run if you stick to your studies and go through and truly become wise and uh over time eventually you'll have a much greater effect than running about agitating on campus when you don't know anything yet okay and there's something interesting moving on to page 79 he's talking about the national student association he says for several years in, in 1962 he says it shifted from liberalism to radicalism For several years, I had been one of the six national advisors to NSA, speaking more than once at their national convention. And he says, the 1962 Congress of NSA resulted in a document called Codification of Policy, which remained tempered enough. It put the matter thus, while recognizing the student must devote primary attention to his academic program, the U.S. NSA urges student participation in legitimate social and political activities. He says, The codification contained one page concerned with the aims of education with two very sound paragraphs. One, uh, these are the paragraphs, Atmosphere. American colleges lack devotion to the intellect, a sense of dedication, and a profound respect for the education which the student should be pursuing. The loss of the proper intellectual climate has been accompanied by a misdirection of extracurricular activities through an overemphasis on social, athletic, and governmental activities for their own sake, rather than for the sake of the over, overall educational process. Now, that almost sounds opposed to what he was saying earlier. Second paragraph, the individual USNSA has observed that in the haste to bring... Paragraph two, the individual USNSA has observed that in the haste to bring more education to more people... This is what Kirk has been complaining about. In the haste to bring more education to more people, and as a result of the change in the emphasis of academic achievement, change in emphasis from academic achievement to social adjustment, that's associated with uh, Dewey in the 20s, as you might recall my having lectured on that many times in Radio Astina six, seven, eight years ago. The individual, the center of the educational process, has been forgotten. The aim of education is individual development, not social adjustment. It, is, it was well said and something that intelligent students urgently needed to examine, examine. Most of the NSA's codification, however, was concerned not with the life of the intellect, but rather with political 
and social pronunciamentos, sometimes of a character extremely naive, yet uttered ex cathedra, that is, is from high office, as though when we're speaking as the Pope. More than a page of this document was devoted to Africa under Portuguese domination, and two pages were allotted to the denunciation of South Africa. So that's in 1962, and that that grew hottest during my time in college, the South African stuff, you know, 25 years later. But you can see they were going on about it in the early 60s. So we chased, we traced change over time. Now, just to go back and rehash a little bit, you may remember John Dewey and the progressives sought to change the nature of public schooling from individual intellectual education to one of group adjustment. That makes it easier to control people and create churnout cogs who are suited to be consumers for big business and we might as well say subjects of big government. So all a person needs to read is 100 hours of reading and writing, the three R's. And that's why so many people today homeschool. I, I talked a lot about homeschooling. They want to get away from this and intellectually educate someone. You need the tools. That's just reading, writing, arithmetic achieved in a few dozen hours. Then you have the basis for learning whatever else you need to know. But schools go on for 16 years, and a lot of people would like to make it add on another two, three years before formal school, five, six years old in kindergarten, and after high school. They'd like to have people basically in government schools studying government-approved subjects, government-approved scope of study, government-approved conclusions from basically birth to 25. So all of their originality, their creativity, their energy are funneled in a government-safe, which means Jew-safe, direction. And they're taught to have sex too. They're taught to be promiscuous in the vices too early, to be precocious in the vices, that is. To start talking, thinking, uh, you know, never to be thinking, but always to be drinking and screwing by the time they're 10, 11, 12 years old. And in this way, you get them turned out of themselves and screwed up and messed up. And even even if they don't, none of those happen, they're still jaded. They don't know anything, but they've already experienced everything. And that's what these, admittedly, they are secular. I would call, I still think they're more identified with Christians than someone like Kirkwood. They're, they're just a, a different manifestation of the same mental problem. But for all that, he's right in, in analyzing the effects. That's what this, this group, te- and also forcing people into groups where they get a group grade where the smarter ones have to drag along the dumber ones and training. This is how it's going to be all through society. The competent, effective white p- men have to carry the load for the incompetent colors and sexual deviants. And they accustom these kids to whatever social changes they want by teaching them these things in public schools. And for whatever reason, uh, we just see an echo of that in the student document that he's talking about that was written in 62. And for some reason, it contained two paragraphs of sound sense amongst pages of radical garbage. And I should say also, notice the big change in Christianity from concern the parallel to the change in christian mentation from concern over the soul of the individual to the social gospelism or doing good that took place over the course of the 1800s essentially the jew rothbard wrote was the first to really alert me to this he wrote a lot of great stuff about it. e michael jones wrote a fair amount about it also 
the change from Christianity is something that's concerned with the next world and with the cultivation, the state of the individual soul in this world. It's not it's not purely a, a social mission, but that's what it tended to become. And, and you see the transformation in Protestantism. It's been traced. I recall sitting in the bathtub in about 1992 or so reading a paper version of the Rothbard Rockwell report and, and I loved how there were no pictures in it. It was just like eight or 16 pages of uh, pure gold, pure meat, like I try to bring you. And he was talking about Hillary Clinton, how she had personally gone from kind of a richer Republican conservative background to becoming a sort of radicalized leftist. And she was led by a Protestant preacher. I forget what denomination it was, Methodism or something, and how they'd taken the kids and showed them these poor little niggers and how they were the unguilty victims of white racism, what have you. And that's where Hillary Clinton, through the social gospel Protestantism, became a leftist radical and obviously went on to great success politically after that. But this sort of change in Protestantism from scrupulous concern with the state of the individual soul that you might see in the old works by Nathaniel Hawthorne, the original Puritan mentality, wasn't just moralizing and going out and beating up the other guy because he's evil and you're the elect and you're proving that God, you have God's favor by killing everything and everyone who disagrees. It used to mean legitimate concern for why did I do this, inspecting one's own soul, the stuff that still survives apparently in the the Jesuit ideas that were perverted by the Illuminati. I've talked about this also on Radio Estina. Zela espionage, soul spying, the technique of the Illuminati where they, they twist. Both they and the Jesuits want the man to write monthly reports on his character, and they observe him to find out his guiding passion or his dominant passion. This is libido dominandi, in Michael Jones's book, and they use their knowledge of his soul, and this is this is what drives this man. This is what motivates him. Here's his monthly or his quarterly or whatever reports. I understand his guiding passions, and I use them to control him, the Illuminati would, or to understand and reform his moral character and make him a better person, as the Jesuits would say. But uh, this, uh, and as I've said many times, this is why in the public schools they, they focus on record keeping, to, to always have you open, always have the goy open for inspection is the Jewish motive beyond, behind this, filtered non-racially through the public schools. And so that every your every waking thought is subject for inspection. If it's not up to par, then you get shrieked out like a pod person. But uh, just notice the parallel, though. Christianity moves from concern for the individual soul to social justice. Jewish communists, where the social gospel is what it's called. The Jewish term for that kind of socialism is social justice, which is obviously includes elements of blaming other people for what they didn't do. Blaming basically the, the people who work hard and keep their nose clean for society's failure, the criminal, the useless niggers, and the what have you. You know, so that we see today the leftism, no matter what blacks do, whites are responsible because someone owned slaves 100 and 200 years ago. No black today was ever a slave. No black today ever had anything but government help. And yet somehow whites are responsible. White attitudes are responsible for black behavior. You see, and this goes back to that social justice start. Well, we can't do anything. They, they stop worrying about the state of their individual soul. And then they become pernicious, pernicious to all those around them. 
in the name of doing good. How much bad has been done in the name of doing good? Criminals don't depend. Criminals are actually better than Christians in the sense that and 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 the post-Christians see they, this is the horrible thing for those of us who are right-wing atheists and racialists is that the Christians act like they and the leftists don't spring from a common root but they do it's like Spengler said you know communism the ultimate expression of it is is simply Christianity is the grandmother of Bolshevism. Spiritual equality tends to lead to this other way. Why, you know, well, we can do something about it on earth. We don't know about the next world, but we can do something about it here. So as always, we see, just to wrap up this subsection, education from the Latin to draw out, to draw you out of your narrow, oblivious, private, ego-driven concerns into the broader world that you might see the context and learn and understand what is happening on thereby giving you the intellectual grounds to become a virtuous person because it shows you what will happen if you don't control your appetites and passions and will and it can show you the best that can be achieved if you can control those and it shows you disordered societies and it shows you ordered societies and so what Kirk is lamenting is is saying that these post-Christian secularists, who I argue trace back to the same root, they're just a different manifestation of the same problem. Just like the Christian God, Yahweh are going to allow no gods before them. They're a jealous God. They're intolerant. They don't want any competing any worldviews competing with their own. They just want parents forced to subsidize views they may not agree with to turn these people into right thinkers and they're not concerned with the education of the individual they're concerned with him being able to knowing the party line and faithfully parroting it thus the mass education in the formal public schooling sense has been denounced by some of the more perceptive people as like you can't have propaganda without having mass education it's easier to propagandize white bourgeois northern liberals who've been to college than, say, southern feral illiterate white trash who go mudding and, and quit school and high school. The more education someone's had, the more likelier they are, just because of human biology, to fall prey to conformism and uh, parroting things that are presented to them to, as education but aren't. Because after all, even if education is the cultivation of the individual, most people aren't that individualized. They're going to tend to conform with what they hear. They're going to tend to, concept, to, to accept it. Even if they don't accept it, they're going to know it. And even if they, if they know it but they don't like it, they still have to overcome their fear of opposing it. And if nothing else, they can see and learn from examples that opposing... The party line can be very dangerous. So this is the situation in which we've we've found ourselves. And my gosh, we've already gone an hour and a half, but we have so much more to do. I don't know if we'll get to it all today or I'll break it up, but I'm feeling pretty energetic, so I'm going to keep going. Okay, we'll talk a little about in loco parentis. 
And this is the, the doctrine that the college is supposed to be taking the place of the parents for these for these young adults when they're they're still not fully developed and they still need some oversight. And this is how, like for an example, my mom went to the same school I did, Pomona, and in her time, I can't remember what class she was, but early 60s, they still had, uh, I'm trying to think, well, I'm not sure if the dorms were segregated by sex. They probably were, and they weren't allowed. Boys couldn't be in there after a certain time. But in my time, they were obviously they were much more mixed by the 80s. So effectively, in loco parentis didn't really mean anything. After the revolutions of the 60s, they, they were all broken up. But uh, now... What uh, Again, we're going to find more parallels to the K-12 stuff in here. The, Kirk says on page 93, Thus the average collegian, male or female, virtually was unsupervised by either parents or college officials. There were far too many collegians by that year for in loco parentis to be applied effectively. You know, I, then again, yeah, there's, how, there's no way in the world the professors are going to be able to watch over, you know, tens of thousands of students. So what happens is this kid from rural Ohio goes to, you know, big state U in Ohio, and he's kind of lost and abandoned and on his own. And if he's like very many people, he'll simply fall into drugs and drinking and uh, promiscuous sex, and maybe he enjoys it and gets through it without too many problems. Many do, but maybe he has a lot of problems from it. Many also do. Kirk says... This circumstance delivered the average collegian to the domination of his peer group, arbiters of taste and morals. Most human beings in all ages have acquired their moral habits through emulation and deference. If students find no upright personalities to emulate, they must defer to domineering, flawed personalities. So, with the swelling of campus populations, modes of sexual conduct were determined more and more by the emancipated natures within the student body, by the more reckless or sensual undergraduates swaggering and bragging in the new high-rise dorms, drinking hard and smoking pot in the fraternities. Again, Kirk is, is not just... <laughs> he's not just writing about this academically. He's living in these colleges and seeing what's going on. And notice also, here's where we, we as racialists have a richer, deeper understanding because we know what Kirk isn't going to tell you, which is that this is also the design of the Jews in order to loosen up Aryan society, which they believe through their Hitler-cashiered experts who reassembled in the U.S. and they created the Frankfurt School, they believe that white males have an authoritarian personality and their job is to loosen it up through plying it with booze and liquor and cheap sex. And part of this is done through enforced public schooling where they have to essentially, Aryans have to pay for the undermining of their own young. And the point about homeschooling is when you homeschool, and he just he just made it here, although he's not talking about it specifically, in public schools, you're grouped in with those of your exact same age. And those are the very worst people to be learning from. Whereas if you're in a homeschool, you're in a more natural setting where there's people of all different ages and you're more locked in position and you're not subject to the whims of some crazy group of teenager that, like Kirk says, is dominated by the stronger personalities who are into the more outrageous stuff is going to attract the followers. They're going to tend to take the lead, the the bad folks, whereas the long-sighted adults in a homeschool are going to properly 
watch over the kid and assure his moral development. Do you want some crazy? You know how crazy people are in seventh and eighth grade and junior high in particular. When this stuff first comes to matter, uh, I'm sure a lot of you have seen what that's like. Well, do you want your kid like raised by crazy seventh and eighth graders, or do you want him to grow in wisdom from listening to adults, either yourself or people you've chosen chosen to have him listen to? See, that's the difference. These, these Jews basically want to rip these kids away from their family and poison them, get them thinking the wrong way, get them uniform, get them PC, get them scared, get them personally personally wildly what they call liberated which is actually letting their their worst appetites and and basis desires control their rational nature in the interest of their long-term goals and interests the jews want to liberate they want to liberate the heart and the penis the genitals from the head they don't want the head controlling things. They want people to be led around by their dicks, basically. And so everything that they do is essential. Their, their mouth and their penis will lead them around and looking for stuff to eat or fuck, turning them into white niggers. And they, they have control of the public institution to tell everyone this is how you're supposed to act. This is being a guy. This is being a dude. You know, and traditionally, that's not how it worked. So I'm just I'm just trying to draw some of the parallels here between what is intended by the people who set up public schools and who teach and train their teachers and what they have in mind for your child. And we're seeing the same thing at the college level. The students are stuck in these gigantic dorms. They have no real parental godership. Even even they have no in loco parentis. They don't have any real professors they're close to. There's just too many of them. They're not in a situation where it's good for studying. They're going to be around people who are doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and those are the ones who are going to tend to dominate. So I think you, you understand what I'm saying. I've emphasized that quite a bit. I'll just read two more paragraphs from this particular section, and then we'll be done with it. Uh, and I'll reread what I wrote because I believe repetition is very important. Thus, the average collegian, male or female, virtually was unsupervised either by parents or college officials. There were far too many collegians by that year for in loco parentis to be applied effectively. This circumstance delivered the average collegian to the domination of his peer group, arbiters of taste and morals. Most human beings in all ages have acquired their moral habits through emulation and deference. If students find no upright personalities to emulate, they must defer to domineering, flawed personalities. So, with the swelling of campus populations, modes of sexual conduct were determined more and more by the quote-unquote emancipated natures within the student body, again with the Jewish media egging them on, by the more reckless or sensual undergraduates swaggering and bragging in their new high-rise dorms, drinking hard and smoking pot in the fraternities. And think about all the Jewish uh, movies that have, had have celebrated this behavior and made it so that adult is identified with drugs and drink and pornography rather than serious intellectual pursuits or character, controlled character. 
And the Jews have done that through the mass media. Again, this is something that Kirk won't tell you, but it's just about the most important stuff, is the racial aspect in all this. Kirk says, continuing, My friend, the fraternity house mother, remarked that of the 35... <coughs> excuse me, 35 young men or boys in her house. Perhaps five were actual students. The rest had come to the university for fun or for draft deferment or for lack of lucrative employment. Most of them had plenty of money to spend and few demanding lessons to prepare. Idle and bored, they turned to the amatory diversions readily available on campus. Mere exhortation would not remedy this. Quote, the girls are worse than the boys at the mattress parties, the house mother said. With us at the moment was a youngish professor who had once been a military intelligence officer and was familiar with the world's ways. How jaded these girls will be, he observed. Life will seem to have no future. And that's what the Jews call sexual liberation and college education. The question will come up for us white nationalists. Did, did Kirk know about the Jews and, and what was going on? Well, of course he knew. He had to have known a great deal about it from going around the U.S., but someone like Joe Sobrin, he never, he didn't even write about it at all as much as Joe Sobrin. Now, his comment that I started with about the neocons indicates that he knew damn well what was going on at the foreign policy level, and he had to know at the social level too, but he... he Never really took it up that, that I'm aware of in his writings. He really didn't deal with race, except incidentally, and he didn't really deal with Jews at all. He was simply interested in other stuff. And at that time, race and Jews had not become as big of an issue as they are today. And of course, this is pre-internet. So what can you say there? Sobern knew everything about the Jews, but he refused to put them on page one. That doesn't mean that when he did write about them, he was wrote about them as well as anyone ever has written about them. But nevertheless, for his own reasons, he preferred to write about other things as he might have seen them as more important or he just didn't see any percentage in it. Although he certainly sacrificed a great deal in, in what he did write about them. But then again, how can we call it a sacrifice when that's his duty? conservative of all people ought to understand that if something needs to be said who is not going to say it if not the most intelligent members of society if not you might as well hang around with your peers if someone like kirk is better than the rest of us then why do we listen to him and if he is better than us why is he not talking about the most important things in the way quite as william pierce might have written it seem like it would certainly seem to me that Kirk would know these sorts of things, even being limited to, to staying in McCost in Michigan where he was, but he, as far as I know, he never really wrote about Jews too much. Or race. Skipping ahead, okay, I think one of the main things here is is when when you start saying that it's illegal to teach any kind of religious teaching, which I agree with Kirk, it should not be. You should be able to teach whatever religious matter you want to teach. You can't deny that a lot of people believe in Christianity or, or some other let, let them teach and preach what they want there's there's no natural way to make any kind of separation there between religious stuff and, and other stuff at least from a, from a legal and programmatic point of view so basically what they're saying is is our view amounts to objective science and any other view is a religious mumbo jumbo that should be separated from the university Okay, moving along to page 102, I'm going to read a little, little from Kirk. 
Rioting and cheating were the ineluctable consequences of Behemoth University's inhumane scale. Anonymous students in the campus's lonely crowd, knowing no true academic community and finding no norms acknowledged by university's administrators or many of its its professors, sank into cheating as the quickest way out of a pretentious educational racket. And besides, an IBM number knows no shame. And he says, the first step toward restoring an object to the campus and purpose to the student's life would have been the recovery of a humane scale. The campus needed genuine academic community among scholars and among students. Community, which is necessar- which necessarily is voluntary and comparatively small, was a world apart from the prevalent academic collectivism of the mass campus. And again, it's somewhat similar to what I see last time I, last podcast number 008, I spoke about my idea of a white, how whites can live among whites after we eject the muds and the Jews who sick them on us. And this is part of the thinking that informs my own ideas, which is that stuff ought to be private and voluntary and and local. And that only that is national, which is absolutely unavoidably national, which is the racial collective defense since we're being attacked as a group by a, a team. Jews are, in fact, a racial team attacking us as a group. And part of the success of their attack is that they don't want us identifying as white men, yet that is the basis on which they attack us. But if we unite as whites, what are they going to do about it? There's not much they can do about it if we have any degree of cohesiveness and unity, you see. Okay, we're moving ahead to page 119. And we're talking about radicalism and... I'll just read. Revolutionary action, these students thought, is the object of the academy. Here he's talking about Berkeley. Revolutionary action is the object of the academy. That's what the radicals of Berkeley were thinking. Lectures should be harangues meant for the propagation of a new social faith they implied, and campuses should become staging grounds for the overthrow of existing public authority. And he talks about relevance, man. Everything's got to be relevant. And then Kirk says, in the long run, the sort of education which most profoundly affects the civil social order is that education which lifts the student above the confusion of the hour's quarrels. You see, it gets him above the din so he can see the long view. The function of the college is not to gratify material hopes, but to introduce students to long views. The function of the college is not, turning on to 120, to rouse the young to revolt against the nature of things, but to acquaint them with the wisdom of their ancestors. The function of the college is not to promulgate an extravagant ideal of human perfectibility, but to teach us the joy and the tragedy of the human condition. The function of the college is not to inflame the passions, but to lead us toward right reason. Always a huge concept with conservatives, right reason, radiocination. You're in your right mind, you're becoming wise and virtuous as you learn to take the long view you learn the wisdom of your ancestors and 
while it must be adapted to changing circumstances, you don't you don't abandon it and run around like a chicken with your head cut off when someone screams for some easier, immediate change that's going to remake the world. All right, picking up again on page 132. Many freshmen told me in 1969, Kirk says, that they had chosen a campus where the action is. But of action, we all have plenty in the course of life. What the university offers is academic leisure, dialogue, and reflective preparation. Few people, after entering upon the hurly-burly of the world, ever find again enough time to study and to think. The four or five or seven years of college and university life are precious. All this said, nevertheless, I apprehended the causes of the new left mentality on the campus and in part shared the mood of, shared in the mood of resentment. Against the decadence of the higher learning, the confused outcries of the new left were a reaction. Wounded though these young men and women would have been, had I called them reactionaries. Wounded though those young men and women would have been, had I called them reactionaries. But he's saying they're reacting to something that really is there. They just can't perceive what it is. And he's explaining to them that they hunger but are not fed. As they say in the Bible, they don't know what they hunger for. They don't know what they need. They're trying to get it in a, in a crude way. And he appreciates why they're doing it if they don't themselves. And on the same page, we have some interesting uh, interesting quotation from Christopher Jenks, who's a fairly well-known name. Look it up if you're, if you're not familiar with him. Kirk writes, Shortly before the major troubles of the campus had begun, Dr. Christopher Jenks had estimated that on the typical campus, only 1% of the students had desired to obtain a serious intellectual discipline, semicolon. 2%, a more general education, semicolon. Perhaps 5% had sought an introduction to middle-brow culture and middle-class conviviality, semicolon. 20% had been after technical training, semicolon. Another 20% after mere certification as potential employees. That had left more than half the campus population unaccounted for, and, as Jenks had put it, those simply had not known what they desired from college and had not lasted out four years to take degrees. There's a mob ready to hand. So he's saying 1% want true educational discipline, 2% a more general education, 5% just uh, some acquaintance with the names they can drop at parties, and another, uh, so one, two, five right there, you know, 7 8%. <laughs> And then you've got another 20% they want technical training. The rest have no freaking idea. They just go to college because now it's become the norm. You're just what you do after high school. That didn't used to be the case before World War II. So there's kind of your sociology of where the minds are at in 1969 at the height of a lot of this social unrest on the campus. Now add to the mood of loneliness and boredom the personal grievance of most male students against military conscription 
Add to it the smoldering discontent of the proletariat of academe, the exploited teaching assistants. Add to it the resentments and bewilderment of the black power students, most of them unprepared for higher studies, impelled to, quote, do their own thing, unquote, even though, as Tocqueville wrote of the French during their revolution, halfway down the stairs we threw ourselves out of the window to get to the ground more quickly. A revolutionary mentality. With these conditions in mind, one did not marvel that an impulse to pull down was powerful upon the campuses of 1969. Quarter-schooled people with the felt grievances are the natural prey of the ideologue. The terrible simplifiers appeared, and almost any young ideologue with a tawdry set of yesteryear's anarchist or Marcus slogans could find some following on most campuses. Any set of slogans would serve. Anyway, that's a, that's a good little nutshell of what it was like in 69 and how people are easily inflamed when they don't know where they are or what they're doing and what their purpose is. <laughs> they fall prey to uh, strong personalities who appear into their midst and shout simple slogans. Now, moving ahead to page 178, here we have some interesting stuff on the unionization of college professors. And this just helps you stick in your mind, again, the, the overall changing conditions in academia. He says, until 1973, unionizing of college professors and instructors and teaching assistants was negligible in the United States. So it was a K-12 affair, the NEA, but they had little unions had little to do with colleges up till 73. Then he says, yet certain circumstances within the academy, combining with the ambitions and the resources of the NEA and the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, National Education Association, NEA and the AFT, their state and local affiliates, made up almost wholly of teachers in public elementary and secondary schools, made it possible for the teachers' unions to gain a little headway in college and university as early as 1973. With some reluctance, the American Association of University Professors entered into this competition, its local chapters offering themselves as bargaining agents by way of alternative to NEA and AFT affiliates. So I think that's, that's interesting. You try to get, it's just going to be a force for monopoly and conformity if you have the NEA if you have the federal government moving into all levels of education and you and you have the NEA the teachers union a very powerful political player second only probably to the the Jews or maybe the, uh, the AARP uh moving into the uh the colleges as well as the K12 where they're already well established and they have one agenda and they demand conformity with it And here's some really, really good stuff. Think about this. And again, this is this is just background. This, this is really good. I'll just read it. Now, why did the door suddenly open in 73? One influence was the circumstance of static or diminishing enrollments. Okay, so what you had was Post-World War II, there's a huge increase in the number of students and the amount of government money going into education. So you, at that time, college was limited. When that, when that happened, they needed a bunch more teachers. So a bunch, it's just ordinary supply and demand economics, a bunch more teaching going to 
a bunch more people go into getting PhDs and becoming teachers, but that eventually you have too many, and and eventually they expanded the uh, number of people in college for a couple decades, but finally they hit a point where there's no more there's no more people there, you know, like with credit cards to give credit to, except the unworthy, where there's no more people to draft into your college except people who aren't qualified. And at that point, there's there's no more professor slots open, and they begin to actually shrink. And as the pendulum swings back the other way, that's an open appeal to unionization because it, it provides protection, especially to the less competent, which is a point he's about to make, which is why I'm reading this to you. Because I don't do any shit that doesn't have a point. Even if the point is merely to entertain you with humor. Now let's see, he says, given the individuality of college professors, again, this is 178, page 178, and their presumptive ability to bargain for themselves with college administrators, unionization seems unnatural in the academy. Certain fears of some professors and instructors, however, had opened the door cracked by 73. One influence was the circumstance of static or diminishing enrollments which might mean that a fair number of college teachers could lose their posts, not being really needed if the trend should continue. Another influence was the inadequacy of not a few college staff members who had been engaged during the years immediately following the Second World War. In those days, anybody with the slightest pretensions to potential membership in the academy had been sought out to teach the flood of veterans and others that had poured into college and university. Persons privately conscious that they actually are unqualified for college posts, whether by scholarship or by talents as teachers, and whose standing with improving or economizing college administration seems insecure, tend to seek safety in numbers. That is, the unions are for the incompetent, or at least more useful to the incompetent than any other group. That is, to league themselves with powerful organizations that call the discharge of practically any teacher victimization just as we see today the nea is very much against testing its teachers for any kind of merit because three quarters of them would be dismissed because they're not they're not they haven't mastered the material they're even teaching if you can't read you can't teach reading at the same time the great teachers unions having already enjoyed massive success in establishing union shops within public schools were looking for new worlds to conquer Their organizers turned their talents to college and university, and though they found those nuts rather hard to crack, by 1973 there was a serious concern in the academy about the growing activity of the teachers' unions and what this might do to the freedom and the standards of the university and college faculties. The only true freedom is freedom to work, Irving Babbitt, one of the people, one of the conservatives he cites in his The Conservative Mind. Irving Babbitt had written in 1924, All other rights depend upon the right to work, he reasoned, for if we are prevented from doing our work, life is scarcely worth living. We must find our happiness in in work or not at all. With Aristotle, he held that the highest form of work is the work of the intellect. And then he goes on on into academic freedom. But I just wanted to read that to let you see how... uh, just sort of the bigger picture of all these all these influxing people equals more professors, but then eventually they run out of new students, so there's less need for professors, so the professors turn to unionization that's already negatively affected the public schools.
Okay, moving to page 201, he, he talks about, uh, I'll, I'll just read it. In 1975, a functionary of HEW, Health Education and Welfare, that's what it used to be called, issued a UKZ or an edict or a diktat. Beginning in 1976, all universities and colleges which accepted students who received grants, scholarships, or loans through the medium of HEW, Hugh, as it was called, must comply with all sorts of federal regulations and most immediately with affirmative action directives. So anti-whiteism became federal law as of 1976. That means basically that any college that even gets has students who get loans backed up by the federal government or from the federal government must comply with all their anti-white racial, racial rules. And so the authority cited was the Title IX of the Federal Educational Amendments of 1972. An obscure provision therein was extravagantly interpreted to signify that, for a beginning, private colleges which accepted students who in turn accepted some federal largesse must comply fully with the iron regulations of affirmative action and prove, if possible, their innocence of discrimination. And then he starts talking about Dr. George Roche and Hillsdale, which we mentioned earlier, Hillsdale's in Michigan. That Michigan institution, again, this is a conservative college, had a long history of welcome to women and blacks. But Hillsdale, which had refused to accept any government subsidies, did not mean to be converted into an instrument of national political policy. And that's what it is. See, they're not even saying if you take a grant, like for some phd science program you have to do what the government wants they're saying if you even have a student who gets a loan backed by us or from us you must comply and make yourself an agent of all our various you know department of justice promoted anti-white policies and again this is in the early mid-70s we're talking about affirmative action was started by lyndon johnson and it was institutionalized by richard nixon the conservative right that the left hates Not long before, Dr. Roche had published a slim book about the follies of affirmative action. Perhaps that was why H.E.W. chose Hillsdale. Hugh chose Hillsdale as its first specific victim of this enlargement of Title IX. Rather than allow such a federal takeover of our campus, Dr. Roche declared, we are prepared to refuse compliance with the government edicts now proposed. None of us at Hillsdale underestimates the power of the federal government to harass and possibly destroy those who do not comply, but we feel the fight must be made if independent education is to endure in America. If necessary, Hillsdale would refuse to accept undergraduates who held federal scholarships, grants, loans, or other benefits, but would set up its own special scholarship, scholarship fund to provide for students deprived of Washington's gifts. And then he goes on to detail the history there. I think Hillsdale, at least for a while, I don't know if it still does today, but it refused to take, it, it maintained its independence, but it was one of only like two, two, I think it was, colleges that did that nationwide of these small liberal arts type places. Uh, yeah, then he also goes into some of the, some of the absolute garbage that went into the black studies and some of the federal money creating these bureaucracies serving you know the usual protected classes even as they destroyed standards and all you know the usual boondoggles all this money goes from 
white earners to the feds and is distributed to incompetent blacks and and corrupt jews who create bogus schools of racial studies and give bogus degrees to uh blacks and other other useless people now he talks about he's talking about umass and the school of education a principal defender of the Allen regime at this interesting school of education was the university's provost, Dr. Robert Glukstern, who you could bet is a Jew. The very gentleman appointed by the university to investigate rumors of strangeness at the school of education. Provost Glukstern's son, Stephen, received a doctorate from that school without being registered in any of the school's courses as a reward for, quote, participating in alternative schools as he wandered over the face of the United States. He passed directly from Bachelor of Arts to Doctor of Education. So you see what's going on. Curiouser and curiouser, says Kirk, quoting uh, Lewis, Lewis uh, Carroll in uh, Alice in Wonderland. I obtained reams of reports on these instructive affairs at, the U- at UMass. They were not all bad. The school had been kind to minority applicants seeking doctorates, especially if those minority representatives were powerful and affluent. Among the doctoral candidates of the university's Amherst campus were such grandees as Bill Cosby, comedian and rapist, and Jesse Jackson, white food spitter, the zealot for civil rights in Chicago. Some such were recruited to add unusual variety. And remember, this is the same era, or it's a few years later, but it's the same sort of environment that awarded the plagiarist Michael King, MLK, a bogus PhD. It was Boston University up there. And the media covered it up. So this is the the kind of milieu that's been created by all this federal money going into education. And here's a little bit from pages 286, 287 on on the right attitude that a genuine instructor has. Just something to keep in mind. I'll read it to you. The classroom ought to be a place for the objective imparting of an intellectual discipline, not for the promulgation of the instructor's private judgments on prudential questions. That means like local, timely, relevant, passing matters of the hour, particularly when those private opinions are of a partisan character. He's not there to spout his own opinions and force you to go along with them, lest he give you a bad grade. He's there to teach you an objective body of, of work necessary to master some particular discipline. A class at any level of schooling ought not to be converted into a captive audience for factional rhetoric, no matter how well intended. And in college and university especially, some toleration for differing opinions among the students is important. The scholar's primary responsibility is not toward faction, no matter how important a question of the hour may seem to be, but toward an intellectual inheritance and a body of knowledge. The professor ought not to convert himself into a political propagandist, and the student cannot be accepted to accept passively a programmatic injunction concerning which there exist honest and serious differences of opinion. So the job of the professor is to pass on a body of, of, of knowledge to the student not to issue opinions about the matters of the day and force them to go along so understand that that's what true education is it's concerned 
for the other person. And part of that, it's kind of like having a kid. You recognize the kid is you, but it's not you. It's also an independent person in its own right. And so you have to have due respect for that. The professor is not there to create clones. He's there to draw these people out of themselves by exposing them to a known body of knowledge and teaching it to them so that they, in turn, can be can be drawn into something greater and bigger and larger and have a longer-term understanding and become wise and virtuous people. Not, not simply to turn them into little clones or little parrots. That's abusing them. That's intellectual abuse, you see. Okay, now our final sight from him in this book, we will uh, just sort of wrap up the, the idea of a college and what it, what it could be. He, he, he writes about renewal and getting back to uh, what, what a college should be as opposed to what it's become. It has to be much smaller, more humane, more individual directed to the colloquy between the professor and the student. He says, The aim of the old-fashioned col- old-fangled college was ethical. I repeat, the development of the moral understanding and of humane leadership, but the method was intellectual. The enlargement of the mind and conscience through well-defined literary disciplines. A college was an establishment for the study of great literature. It was nearly that simple. Colon, it was nearly that simple. A college was an establishment for the study of great literature. It was nearly that simple. Through the study of great literature, young people prepared themselves for teaching, for the ministry, for the law, for politics, for public leadership. This was what Sir Thomas Eliot had called the education of governors. Whatever the deficiencies of this mode of higher education, it produced a body of sound, principled, and literate men to be the leaders of the American democracy. They learned to govern themselves and to serve the republic through close attention to wise books, the poetry, the philosophy, and the history of Greece and Rome, the Bible, and the history of the Jews, something of modern thought and languages, and something of the literature of mathematics and science. The subjects of study were few, and the course of study was uniform. The intention of the college was not to confer a vague smattering of every branch of knowledge upon its students as per survey courses, which he denounces, but to teach students the fundamental disciplines of logical thought, provide them with a taste and a critical faculty for independent reading and reflection, and then send them into the world with a cast of character fitted for ethical and intellectual leadership. If these young persons remembered no more from college than something of biblical history and precepts from Cicero and episodes of Plutarch, though some young men learned and retained a great deal besides, still that knowledge prepared them better for life, the life of their time or of ours than does the cafeteria curriculum of many universities and colleges nowadays whose graduates may not open a single important book after they have snatched their diplomas. And so we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there with that.
And, and that is what he is saying is, is a true college education. It's basically limited, in-depth look. at a, It's better to look at a few things in-depth than to have a smattering general survey approach to philosophy in five minutes on, on each major thinker. You need better to go into a few things in-depth and treat these questions that always come back and try to understand the point of education is to create wise and virtuous men who can take the longer view in order to best serve their society. People who have their own private house in order, their own soul in order, are best fit to create order in the broader society. And that's what a true and genuine liberal arts education will offer the people who are intellectually fitted to undergo it. Okay? So that's Russell Kirk, Decadence and Renewal in the Higher Learning, written in 1978, or published in 1978, covering the period 1953 to 1978. And we've hit some of the, the points I thought were remarkable out of the, the 400 or so in the book. And we'll turn in just a slightly different area, but pretty related, which is... Now we will deal with uh, something I found when I was researching Kirk, and maybe I'll post a couple of these links, but... uh. This is something he wrote. I've read it before. Ten conservative principles. And even though we're past two hours, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into it. You know what? Uh, I don't know how long it will take. Who cares? It's good stuff. And I will read it, and I will, I will read and re- respond to it. I will point out what's good in it and what's, what I think is not as good in it or what, is, what can be argued with successfully. And this is simply... One, not particularly long, a couple thousand words maybe at most. So I can read the whole thing, but I'll just read it in parts and, and criticize it as we go along. Kind of the verbal equivalent of the the blue noting I do on a leftist articles, which is a good, I consider it jujitsu. G-E-W. Mass meat equals controlled by Jews equals junk media equals Uden Pressa equals controlled media equals high carb media jujitsu martial arts using the opponent's weight against him no need to rewrite a separate article just stick in your own comments on theirs and turn it to your advantage make it make your points anyway 10 conservative principles by Russell Kirk being neither a religion nor an ideology Being neither a religion nor an ideology, it's very important. He's going to emphasize the anti-ideological character of conservatism. A lot of people who use the term ideology don't think about what it means. Essentially, it means a very rigid, schematic way of looking at things where you always have an ideological answer for whatever happens and you either do or are very tempted to trump real-world facts with your ideology i.e. getting back to the pravda-istina distinction, pravda being the noble truth, the higher truth, the the ideological truth that's factually wrong, hence is just simply a lie. Pravda-istina is the distinction in Russian. He's saying conservatism is not ideological. It's more of a disposition. It's a way of looking at the wave and saying, hey, buddy, you know, exactly like uh, Spicoli says in that instance. Where he's 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 saying it's a disposition, it's a way of looking at the wave and kind of becoming one with it. 
saying it's a way of looking at the world and reflecting and appreciating and trying to understand rather than impose shallow, tiny, <coughs> fly of a summer you on top of something that's been around for billions of years. Or in the case of your disgusting kind, you know, at least a few hundred thousand years or a few million years in some anthropoid form, hominid form, Australopithecanthus or whatever the hell was the first hominid creature, Homo erectus, Homo sapiens. <laughs> the soap-using mammal, I believe, is what that means. Like I said, my Latin's a little spotty. But, uh, isn't this great? Isn't this great talking? This is, this is, I wanted people to talk to me like, I, I, I you know, I don't know. I'm, t- I'm trying to, I'm trying to make something that's useful and helpful to someone. I would have listened to hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of this shit when I was a kid, but I had no one to talk to about it. Parents didn't want to talk to about it. They're smart, but they, you know, to them, you know, education is a name and, you know, you, you know. <laughs> You know the whole middle class thing. To me, this this stuff is the the bread of life. Well, bread's not good for you, so that's a that's a bad way to put it. I I know that because I've been educated by Atkins and others. Bread is just carbohydrates, no matter how good it tastes. It's really generally not good for you, even if you use whole grain. Stay low, don't get beat. Anyway, being neither a religion nor an ideology, the body of opinion termed conservatism possesses no holy writ. No das Kapital to provide dogmata, dogmatic opinions. So far as it is possible to determine what conservatives believe, the first principles of the conservative persuasion are derived from what leading conservative writers and public men have professed during the past two centuries, i.e. dating back to Burke, who's kind of the father of modern conservatism, as he calls it. He's writing in the, you know, the 1780s, 1790s at the time of the French Revolution and also the American Revolution or just right after it. So he's saying it's, you get the principles from the men who've written, who are called conservatives, the public men called conservatives over the last 200 years. It's it's not something that has a rigidly laid, like the 10 planks of Marxism. It's not like that. It's not an ideology. It's a way of looking at the wave and saying, hey, buddy, let's party. You know, that's that's more the spirit of what he's saying. Conservative is a way of taking the world, a way of looking at the world. So he says, after some introductory remarks on this general theme, I will proceed to list 10 such conservative principles. Not tenets or planks, but, well, tenets maybe in a sense, but not ideological planks. He says, perhaps it would be well most of the time to use this word conservative as an adjective chiefly. For there exists no model conservative, and conservatism is the negation of ideology. It is a state of mind, a type of character, a way of looking at the civil social order. Elsewhere, he says it's a disposition. And that's what I've said is I've contrasted it with feminism. And feminism, the basis is not to be appreciative, but to to be angry, to think that you're being oppressed by a patriarchy rather than to look at the world as it is and try to appreciate it, which might lead to understanding. This is why everything, you know, material that exists was created by men. There are reasons for it. It wasn't because women were oppressed. 
every time in the rare the rare five percent of the cases it was a woman that created something she had men helping her she didn't do it against men she did it with men's help whether that's Amelia Earhart getting help from her navigator and her map drawer and the men who created uh, the planes or or it's Emily Dickinson who's you know sister's husband her brother-in-law is is help, helping her with a room and, and money and, and a place to write it's always men helping women but women are a little bit shallow and easily inflamed and and the jews poison them with this feminism which is very much that attitude is the opposite of conservatism let's hey, hey buddy let's slow down here let's slow down here let's try to understand what's going on before we judge it now no one more than me will emphasize the importance of judging things because i say unlike jesus i say the direct opposite judge and be judged don't be all don't be all easy divorce no fault society oh judge not lest ye be hey fuck you do judge do judge hold yourself to a higher standard than jesus sets before you people verily i say and advise unto you hold yourself to a higher standard than is found among the jebusites Judge not lest. Yeah, okay, buddy. Judge not lest. We all judge each other all the time. It's necessary and inevitable and desirable. You don't judge them. Why shouldn't you judge them? We know where that society leads. I've often thought a great literary work could be made by providing the backstory. Okay, Jesus we know is a science fiction character. But he goes up and says, oh, you know, let ye who is without sin among you cast the first stone. I mean, how many... Tens of millions have, of crimes have been let off the hook because, oh, I can't judge anyone because I'm not sinless myself. That, that's, that absolutely is, is a large portion of the mentality of liberalism. This is why these niggers, and talk to any one of your family members who's been in a jury and dealt with this, why they, these fucking Christians will not throw the book. That's why these niggers get out to do their 16th crime because the Christian insists because he hears horse shit like this in church that these niggers can be rehabilitated judge who are we to judge the nigger had a rough a rough upbringing i'm sure he'll reform he just needs one more chance that's not actually how the world works though when you when you do basically one bad thing that's about 90 percent read on who you are you give one more chance to do a bad thing 90 percent of the time you're gonna you're gonna do another bad thing People reveal their character pretty darn early, and it very rarely ever changes. That is wisdom that the world teaches you if you pay attention. And you don't let an ideology like Christianity, and I think Kirk would deny it's an ideology, but I'm telling you it is an ideology. If you don't let that, or that, that that's one of its thousand malicious forms or malicious manifestations. If you don't let it override what sense and evidence are telling you, you will reach the conclusion I just stated. Anyhow... He says conservatism is the negation of ideology. God damn it. You know, and I'm not that old, but God damn, my eyes are going. I'm continually putting my, when I'm not sniffling and snorting, I'm putting on my eyeglasses and taking them off. Driving me fucking nuts. I can't see anything up close. I can't see anything far away. Just horrible. It's so much better to be young than old. So much better. It's so much better to be young than middle-aged. All your 40s should be a pretty good time, but, uh, oh, God. Freaking eyes. Um, I guess I'm getting paid back for not particularly enjoying the fine carrots of this world. Okay, so he says, Hey, bud, let's party. 
So conservatism is the way of taking the world, the way Spicoli looks at a wave, and he takes it seriously. The way a farmer looks at the ground, and he takes it seriously. The way some people take their merits, that's how I feel about it. Perhaps it would be well most of the time to use this word conservative. Do you know why I repeat stuff? Because it, it helps reinforce it. I don't think people should read something just once and not comment on it or let it go. If it's good once, it'll be good the tenth friggin' time. And each time a little a little something new might percolate in, or maybe you weren't totally listening the first time. But if I say it fifteen times, maybe the thirteenth time it gets in your ear and you, you remember it. Remember, remember how I did wisdom and virtue, wisdom and virtue, wisdom and virtue. That's what we're trying to create. Someone with a long view, who's wise and virtuous, who can lead us, who, who has himself in order, has his house arranged, and can thus order society. As an alderman, an elder man, is what the ruling councils of whites are usually called in, in the Germanic society. Because those are the ones, that's the sector of society from which the most wisdom is, is likeliest to come for biological reasons. Now, perhaps it would be well most of the time to use this word conservative as an adjective, chiefly. For there exists no model conservative, and conservatism is the negation of ideology. It is a state of mind, a type of character, a way of looking at the civil social order. The attitude we call conservatism is sustained by a body of sentiments rather than by a system of ideological dogmata. Dogmata. It is almost true that a conservative may be defined as a person who thinks himself such. The conservative movement or body of opinion can accommodate a considerable diversity of views on a good many subjects, there being no test act or 39 articles of the conservative creed. It's not like just a bunch of planks or a political platform. It's kind of a, a way of looking at the world, a way of taking things, a disposition, I, I think is the best way to put it. In essence, and I'm pretty sure it's him who puts it that way elsewhere, just not here. In essence, the conservative person is simply one who finds the permanent things more pleasing than chaos and old night. Yet conservatives know with Burke that healthy change is the means of our preservation. So, so their, their whole idea is to guide existing tumults or, or currents into existing channels so that we can irrigate the fields and we can keep society going, but in the way that it's accustomed to, changing as it needs to change per the always changing circumstances. A people's historic continuity of experience, says the conservative, historic continuity of experience, says the conservative, offers a guide to policy far better than the abstract designs of coffeehouse philosophers. And those would be the rationalists who created the French Revolution or Hillary Clinton and Ira Cohen or Ira Magaziner who are going to redesign our health system from scratch. That's what he means by coffeehouse philosophers. You start with what exists and understands it and see maybe what's wrong with it, where it might be improved a little. You don't, you don't radically sit down and just design something new out of your head that's likely to be worse and with a bloody road to obtaining it. But of course there is more to conservative persuasion than this general attitude. He says, it is not possible to draw up a neat catalog of conservatives convictions. Nevertheless, I offer you summarily ten general principles it seems safe to say that most conservatives would subscribe to most of these maxims. 
In various editions of my book, The Conservative Mind, I have listed certain canons of conservative thought, the list differing somewhat from edition to edition. In my anthology, The Portable Conservative Reader, I offer variations upon this theme. Now I present to you a summary of conservative assumptions differing somewhat from my canons in those two books of mine. In fine, the diversity of ways in which conservative views may find expression is itself proof that conservatism is no fixed ideology. What particular principles conservatives emphasize at any given time will vary with the circumstances and necessities of that era. The following ten articles of belief reflect the emphases of conservatives in America nowadays. And I'm not entirely sure when he wrote this. I'm going to guess in the 80s. But, okay, so he has 10 conservative principles. We're going to go through these and comment on them. And then uh, that, that, will com that will end our show when we're done with that. Oh, we've been going about two and a half hours. It's okay. First, the conservatives believes there exists an enduring moral order. First, the conservative believes that there exists an enduring moral order. That order is made for man, and man is made for it. Human nature is a constant, and moral truths are permanent. So, conservatives don't believe in, like, new Soviet men. They believe that people are going to act pretty much the way they always have. What's the relevance of the white nationalists? Is that they assume that there's big government isn't bad. It's just bad because of the wrong men are leading. If the right men come in, everything will be fine. Or that they can create a new Aryan man who is driven by different morality. He'll be, he won't be selfish. He'll be for the good of the community. But conservatives know that no, people are going to be pretty much what they always have been. Because that's the record of all recorded history. And that's why you can't trust anyone, for example, with the power to counterfeit money. Because it's simply too powerful. No one... Anyone claiming just because he's claimed to be pro-white or whatever, that doesn't mean he won't succumb to the temptation to use the power to counterfeit to enable and enrich himself and his cronies. That's, a, that's conservatism applied to white nationalism, which unthinkingly wa simply wants a white version of Zog. And that's why I'm not a national socialist. I don't believe in centralized power except for the where it's necessary, such as to defend the race. Beyond that, no, it's not needed. This is where I get some of that thinking. But I would have it, I don't get it from Kirk. I get beautiful formulations of it and certain ideas I didn't have myself. But the larger portion of it, it's, it's hard to say because you think at the same time you read, if you're reading seriously. And a lot of these I would have thought myself just because I was, I'm a natural contrarian and I always saw myself as a counterweight to the mass of morons that seem to be most people. And I always knew the joke. I always got the joke before anyone else in the class. I knew what the guy was going to say. So I figured I was probably smarter than just about anyone else. And it was clear to me that people always overreacted to stuff. And I always felt like, no, you need to have someone who's a little more through seeing. And I felt I was that person from a very, very, very early age. And... I never changed my mind fundamentally. That's why I don't get these people. Oh, I've said these asinine things when I was younger. I've said a lot of asinine. I haven't. I've tried as hard as I friggin' could. I've been the same person in character, personality, performance, behavior, and beliefs for basically my entire conscious life. I was the same way I am now when I was a little kid. And I'll be the same way I am when I die. It is 
no doubt about it. I mean, what I believe is basically correct. And although what I believe has changed in the sense is it's been far more in the sense of deepening than in the sense of truly changing. I never went from being a leftist to being a rightist. I went from a conservative who had unfortunately gulped down a couple lies who came to see that they were lies and was very angry about it. But other than that, my views have not really changed. They've simply deepened, matured. I have more experiences I can quote to back them up, but they're the same the same views. And it begins with it. Or I would put it very rather differently than Kirk. And I've expressed my views many times when we're dealing with his, but mine begin with believing that re- objective reality exists independent of one's private feelings about it or perceptions, and that it needs to be paid respect. Whereas they would tend to, instead of reality, they would just they would posit a god who created a transcendent moral order that all must obey, or if they don't obey, they must suffer the consequences. I don't agree with that. But in practice, it, it, there's a very big overlap. It just doesn't matter except when it comes to certain types of polit- politics or the need for a certain type to create a certain type of change. Now he says... First, the conservative believes that there exists an enduring moral order. That order is made for man, and man is made for it. Human nature is a constant, and moral truths are permanent. Now, I agree with this, although I don't believe that the mor- morality is absolute. It's, But whether it's absolute, as they think, from a god, as they think, or whether it's not from a god, it's just... It's simply... Man is like this, and if you act like this, you're going to get this result. And yeah, it pretty much does approach a law. I agree with that. I just don't agree that it's absolute or that it comes from God. But it's just as real as as basically anything else about man. You know, any physical fact about him. Yeah, I I agree that far. You can't radically. You're not going to suddenly wake up and people are going to become super kind and generous and nice and not looking after their own instincts. No, they're going to be the way they are. So man does have a nature, and it doesn't really, it can't really be changed by the political order. Now, maybe it can be changed by the scientific order. I wouldn't leave that wholly out of the question, because just as you can domesticate kinds of animals, you can certainly alter man to some extent genetically, but we've never had really a a full attempt to do that on the positive side, only on the negative side of wiping out the uh, certain genetic diseases. The future will hold many interesting things, so... I wouldn't be sure that man's nature is locked unchangeably forever. But for now, yeah, people are pretty much the way they've they've always been. And they'll continue to be that way. Now he says, under his first principle, the word order signifies harmony. There are two aspects or types of order, the inner order of the soul and the outer order of the commonwealth. And again, this comes from Plato. 25 centuries ago, Plato taught this doctrine that there are two aspects or types of order, the inner order of the soul and the outer order of the commonwealth. 25 centuries ago, Plato taught this doctrine, but even the educated nowadays find it difficult to understand. The problem of order has been a principal concern of conservatives ever since conservative became a term of politics. Our 20th century world has experienced the hideous consequences of the collapse of belief in a moral order. Like the atrocities and disasters of Greece in the 5th century before Christ, the ruin of great nations in our century shows us the pit into which fall societies that mistake clever self-interest or ingenious social controls 
for pleasing alternatives to old-fangled moral order. I think that's a bit glib and superficial because I know he would mean to apply that to Nazis as well as communists. And I also think it's sort of gutless and smarmy and above the fray. But we'll leave that aside. You know, it's interesting. You'd like to interview someone like Kirk and ask him to say, you know, well, how about Hitler? He wasn't a drunk like Churchill. He wasn't he wasn't a skirt chaser or a useless twat like FDR. He wasn't he wasn't a bum and 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 a his personal moral house, his soul seemed to be pretty much in order. I mean, he won awards for for courage. He wasn't in it for money or sex. So if he had good internal order within his soul, why are you so quick to ignore that and dismiss what he tried to do as society, Mr. Conservative Kirk? Because it seems like the way he conducted himself, he he was ordered enough to where he might have been one of the aldermen who was well-suited to arranging order in his society. Interesting, interesting to think about from that point of view. But of course, the conservatives, even the traditionalist ones like Kirk, operating somewhat semi-independently. I say semi because Kirk was a big enough name, he could pretty much speak his mind, but he still had to go through organs to get paid like Jewish publishing houses in New York City and Jew affered William F. Buckley's National Review was, was would be his main conservative outlet so it's, it's hard to know if he was totally if he was free enough to where he could even speculate on stuff like that you saw the abuse he got from the neoconservatives merely for pointing out that they put Israel ahead of the U.S. It has been said, he says, by liberal intellectuals that the conservative believes all social questions at heart to be questions of private morality. Properly understood, that statement is true. A society in which men and women are governed by belief in an enduring moral order, by a strong sense of right and wrong, by personal convictions about justice and honor, will be a good society, whatever political machinery it may utilize. While a society in which men and women are morally adrift, ignorant of norms, and intent chiefly upon gratification of appetites, will be a bad society, no matter how many people vote, and no matter how liberal its formal constitution may be. And again, here this screams and cries to be linked to the Frankfurt School's Jew-enforced, Jew-led, Jew-promulgated, Jew-fostered culture of personal and political dissolution through sexual permissiveness, sexual laxity, sexual promiscuity. That's where this adriftness, this alienation comes from in large part, but Kirk never talks about that stuff, even though it was overtly written about by the Frankfurt School in the 40s and 50s. And the temptation is always for the conservative because he's taking the long view the downside of taking the long view or, or affecting to take the long view in your writings is you can always you can always find an excuse for not getting involved in stuff where you being that very intelligent student of history could be extremely valuable to a struggle but you know always excuse yourself I say well God wanted it to work out this way or it's best not to get involved in these. I need to keep my own soul in order. There's always some excuse 
for not getting involved where you might make the difference, and thus conservatism tends toward quietism. It's always been a criticism of the Catholic Church, and you'll notice how many of these conservatives, even if they aren't Catholics, and most of them are, the non-Jewish conservative intellectuals, they still have great respect for the Catholic Church. But quietism is definitely, definitely part of this and, and a problem with it. You know, why, why is Kirk not talking about the Frankfurt School and its deliberate racial attacks on the biological character of the white man? Because the conservative contents himself, oddly enough, here's the, here's the uh, contradiction. Humanity as a nature, well, does the nature have the same, does the nigger have the same nature as the white man, Mr. Kirk? Where's the Jew's biological hyphen psychiatric examination is more sophisticated and deeper. They look at what the white man actually is. They don't talk about human nature. They talk about white nature and how best to explain it so that they can control it. And they find the white man really likes freedom, privacy, dignity, and when he operates as a white living in a white white man living in a white context he's going to be tend to be what we like to call as a joke among ourselves anti-semitic because he won't like the disorder that we bring that we need to achieve our plans and enrich ourselves and empower ourselves he won't like that so what we have to do now that we have scientifically studied and analyzed and nailed down his character far far more granularly than this conservative philosopher who's satisfied with his bromides about human nature we have identified white man nature in order to be able to control it in fact in order to destroy it and when it comes to destroying there are we are the foremost experts in the history of the world kirk broaches on none of this but you'll also notice none of what he says is inconsistent with it necessarily and in fact, it's more consistent with it than inconsistent. Inconsistent with it is my argument. But you see, when he doesn't talk about the kind of stuff I'm throwing in there now, is why conservatism ultimately is is not as interesting as racialism, except to people who are fundamentally mystics. That is the 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 believers. Now, all right. All right, let's move on to the second principle now. He says, second, and there are 10 of these, remember, Richard, I'm sorry, Russell Kirk. I always call him Richard. Russell Kirk, Russell Kirk. Boy, you just don't meet many women named Russell, do you? It's probably one of the last names that's not, what is it, Epicene? Is that the right term? I'm going to write that down. I'll use that in my language column. Yeah. yeah, I'm collecting I'm collecting new words. I, I've collected a few because I ran out of my bag. I had a bag saved up for a couple of years. Eventually I'm gonna run I'm gonna run a big a big drop of all my notes because I've been trying to collate my notes up to 2013 with my 2014. I got my 2014 totally squared away, but I got a whole huge grab bag of good stuff. You just like idea like an idea midden. You know, like a kitchen midden in anthropology where they find all the 
the bones and discarded stuff, tools and, and shards, an idea midden, just all kinds of ideas fermenting and growing, like in the mulch pile I've built. Anyway, point number two of ten. Second, the conservative adheres to custom, convention, and continuity. It is old custom that enables people to live together peaceably, he says. It is old custom that enables people to live together peaceably. The destroyers of custom demolish more than they know or desire. It is through convention, a word much abused in our time, that we contrive to avoid perpetual disputes about rights and duties. Law at base is a body of conventions. Now that's funny. Now it doesn't so law so he's willing to say he's not willing to say that about morality though. He says it about law though. Continuity is the means of linking generation to generation. It matters as much for society as it does for the individual. Without it life is meaningless. When successful revolutionaries have effaced old customs, derided old conventions, and broken the continuity of social institutions, why presently they discover the necessity of establishing fresh customs, conventions, and continuity. But that process is painful and slow, and the new social order that eventually emerges may be much inferior to the old order that radicals overthrew in their zeal for earthly for the earthly paradise. Now yeah, that could be a bit of a straw man. I think he exaggerates the value of of uh, traditions. He also they people like him don't ever give any serious consideration to how traditions were formed in the first place. They were generally formed by someone who is not a traditionalist, someone who fell into something or anything where the, where the cause and the effect are even just slightly dislocated, where they're, where they're not obviously, one thing doesn't obviously cause another, there's likely to be danger. The example is the, like the, the lead pipes used to, to carry water in Rome. That's, that's poisonous, but it wasn't obvious that it was poisonous. Yet that was their tradition. They, a lot of traditions are like that. They don't obviously kill you, but that doesn't mean they're the best way or that they're even a good way. They may actually be a bad way. But, you know, the individual is foolish, but the species is wise. I don't see how that can literally mathematically be true. I don't think the individual is all that foolish, and I don't think the species is wise myself. So I disagree with Burke on that. Anyway, conservatives are the champions of custom, convention, and continuity because they prefer the devil they know to the devil they don't know. Or you could say they're also just kind of cowardly, which is the, 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 that's the other truth. That he's, that's, the, that's the less, uh, <laughs> that's the flip side to this sort of veiled self-praise coming from their highest intellectual. They prefer the devil they don't know because they do know because they're scared of the devil they don't know. So they, they kowtow before political correctness because, okay, I can't say nigger, I can't tell the truth about race, yeah, maybe it'll get my daughter, but maybe it won't get, maybe it will get me last. They prefer the devil they know to the devil they don't know, whereas if, what if I took to the street and used my real name and stood up and fought the Jews, that devil is probably even scarier than the devil of going along with political correctness. Order and justice and freedom, they believe, are the artificial products of a long social experience the result of centuries of trial and reflection and sacrifice. That's dubious. 
Thus, the body social is a kind of spiritual corporation comparable to the church. It may even be called a community of souls. Human society is no machine to be treated mechanically. The continuity, the lifeblood of a society must not be interrupted. It's funny, though. The lifeblood, the continuity, the lifeblood must not be interrupted, but, but he's less willing to focus on racial interruption through the promotion of diversity. Of course, that wasn't as big as his time. He died before this really became stuff that was on the first page just continually, but still, you can see where conservatives ought to be, if they're in line with what Burke's saying, they ought to be the biggest racialist out there, if anything. If they believe in continuity, what's more important than the continuity of genes? I mean, the culture comes from the genes. The continuity, the lifeblood of society must not be interrupted. Burke's reminder of the need for prudent change is in the mind of the conservative. But necessary change, conservatives argue, ought to be gradual and discriminatory, never unfixing old interests at once. So, so, so reform and slow modifications adaptations rather than radical herky-jerk you know transfers from one thing to another well you can see what he's saying it makes it makes plenty of sense but the problem is what what this always amounts to a perfect example is if you've seen the cartoon king of the hill this would be conservatives who are not radicals attempting to adapt their lives and their minds and their ways to new ways of the new reigning orthodoxy put out there by Zog. What Zog plans for white people, they don't like it, but they're not willing to look at it. They're not, this is where the weakness of conservatism kicks in. The bias is toward adjusting towards stuff because you have to rather than trying to change it. So they're always going to be at the whim of the radicals and and also their anti-intellectualism. Instead of trying to identify the pattern that's besetting them and causing these changes, they're, they're apt to find a way to rationalize it as something that God intended, that even, even if they can't understand why, well, we've got we to gotta follow the law, like Eisenhower sending the troops down, because out of just blank respect for the law, even when the, the law came from Jews who were ignoring the law. So it's very easy to lose sight of the distinction between conservatism and cowardice because in so many instances, conservatism is either anti-intellectualism or cowardice or both. And that's ultimately why it's not a solution and it's not satisfying. But if you watch King of the Hill, you see you see continually how Mike Judge is a, is a, a satirist and he's also a conservative and he's he's... He's not questioning the orthodoxies of liberalism. He's just showing some of the ironies of them and showing how ordinary people without any ideological agenda might adapt to them. And he's working in a medium where obviously anything conservative is suspicious and anything overtly ideologically opposed to it isn't even allowed. That's left to people like me. (laughs) And, uh... Suffice that to say, that's a priestly calling. It's not something that's done for mammon, that's for damn sure. And anyway, I think it would work better if, if he's, he's laying out the principles of conservatism, but he's not giving you the opposite side. And this, this is where thinking like a Jew comes in handy. Look at stuff from all different angles. Try to find holes in it. Try to knock it down. 
overtly recognize that what you're doing. You're trying to knock it down. Try to find out what's what, – even if you're not trying to knock it down, ask what's the opposite of this view? What's the other view? What's the alternative way of looking at it? And what, not just one, but what are, what are five or six alternative ways of looking at it? What's a way of putting what he says even better? You see, and through asking all these questions and considering these different things and reading his opponents as well as other people who feel the same as he is, you can approximate something. You can arrive at something where you have at least an understanding of all these questions that he's dealing with rather than roll and say, oh, yeah, it sounds pretty good. I guess that's about right. As, as we more or less did with Plato and saying that wisdom and virtue, the edge of education, well, what other edu- ends of education could there be? Maybe we, we become educated in order better to understand and manipulate others to our own advantage. Maybe that's the true end of education. Maybe all education is ultimately to learn more things, to, to, to avail ourselves of the widest possible scope of, of personal power and amusement. Maybe that's the true end of education. But see, I haven't even delved into any of that. But I, I came up with that with the top of my head. I could come up with 50 other things that it could be for. But you see, there's not enough time in the world to consider all these things. But this is what thinking is. We take what someone who's obviously intelligent can formulate things very well, says, and then we, we subject it to criticism. Culture of critique, eh? Just as we subject the Jews to a culture of critique, we analyze what they're doing. We say, this is what they're, they think they're doing to us through their Frankfurt School. Why doesn't our smart guy on the right talk about this at all? How could he not be aware of this, you know, in the, writing in the two decades after this stuff is becoming prominent and known? We don't know. I don't know. I don't know that he ever addressed that stuff. So conservatives are big on on custom and tradition and just basically blindly repeating it and not not thinking about where it came from cuz to they, they prefer the devil they know or the devil they don't know and it's not and, and and it really is because they're that's just kind of the people they are. They say 19 out of 20 people are just repeaters and one is a spark. And presumably anything else would be dangerous, but it's kind of a negative implication that people are just simply herd animals. And basically, they're going to go along with whatever they hear coming out of the loudspeaker is, is pretty much what it is. And I, I would even go along with him and saying the bias ought to be in favor of the tradition since it's not obviously killing people. But to, to grant it more than that is, is simply wrong. And then when you grant it this nimbus, this holy, this holy holiness, that comes from its being part of some transcendent order, then you've come close to teaching people whatever happens is what God wanted and these ways were set by God when in fact they were set by the first clown who ate, who figured out that this berry was poisonous. This one wasn't, you know. He's granted tradition more than it, more than it deserves. Point three. Third, conservatives believe in what may be called the principle of prescription. That is, like, when, when in doubt, there's some, something's been prescribed socially that will be some adage, some nursery rhyme. Like, if you see a very attractive snake and you want to pick it up, then you remember the rhyme, like, red touch yellow, kill a fellow. Red touch black, nice to jack. And then you go, wow. It's very hard to refrain from picking up a black, red, and yellow snake because it's just so beautiful and you want to you feel it running around in your fingers. But you got to remember... The prescription is that if red is touching the yellow, that little sucker can bite you and kill you. So you don't want to do that. Conservatives sense that modern people are dwarfs on the shoulders of giants, able to see farther than their ancestors 
only because of the great statue of those who preceded us in time. This is stinks of a little of a Volan, a Volan nonsense about prior golden ages, when in fact, people who came before us were the same miserable clouds with bad teeth. Is the truth. Therefore, conservatives very often emphasize the importance of prescription, that is, of things established by immemorial usage, so that the mind of man runneth not to the contrary. Just do it because other people did it. Now, I've given the example of, like, Aaron cooks chicken at 350 for an hour and a half, when you could cook it at 450 for 45 minutes to an hour and have a much tenderer chicken. I found that myself by testing it because I dared to question the immemorial usage of cooking chickens at 350 because I'm a, I'm a radical and I'll never change. I'm a rebel. I'm a contrarian. I dared. I dared. I'm like, you know what? What if I cook this chicken at 450, man? So this is like a Ch- Chuck Yeager's test flight breaking the, the Mach level one barrier. I like to think of it in, when I'm feeling particularly self-regarding. But my point is like, then you ask these people, and I've seen other examples of this in cooking. Like, why did you always cook this in two bowls? Well, because we had we had two pans. I didn't have one pan that was big enough. Oh, and and most tradition, or, or much more tradition than Kirk is ever willing to concede, is based on that kind of thing. It was it was temper. It was something temporized, or simply nig rigged at the time that fell into general use because people don't think. And yet Kirk is basically here. T- the downside to what he's saying is he's talking down thinking. Don't think. Just do what people have always done, even though what people have always done might have been done for some brainless or for some temporarily expedient reason. Oh, I cooked it in two pans because I didn't have one large pan. But if I'd had one large pan, that would have been the better way to do it. But everyone always, from grandmother to mother to daughter, always did it in one pan until someone thought to ask finally because that was the way it was always done. You see, and... Much tradition falls into that camp, but Kirk is the foremost defender of of idiotic, literally unthinking, black box traditionalism. And and here's here's the the irony of it is he sure as hell doesn't believe that for himself. He sure as hell believes the rationalist position that his mind can figure out damn near everything even if it's only to figure out that he can't figure it out or that it, the truth can't be known. He damn sure trusts his own mind. He just doesn't trust anyone else to think. That's what's that's the irony and that really the ridiculousness of the conservative position with regard to the head. The head really is just there to be a hat rack, is essentially his position. Humans have a head for no reason. They certainly shouldn't ever use it. That's the Catholic position. And, of course, he converted to Catholicism, as we observed earlier. The head is a hat rack. You know, let Jesus die for your sins. You can't find anyone to work out for you, I guess, and improve your muscles. But your imaginary soul can be saved by some imaginary character. So you got that going for you. Now he says, uh, and that's nice. (laughs) Therefore, conservatives very often emphasize the importance of prescription. That is, things established by immemorial usage. So that the mind of man runneth not to the contrary. There exist rights of which the chief sanction is their antiquity, including rights to property often. Similarly, our morals are prescriptive in great part. 
conservatives argue that we are unlikely, we moderns, to make any brave new discoveries in morals or politics or taste. That's probably true, yeah. At least until science changes what man is through genetics. It is perilous to weigh every passing issue on the basis of private judgment and private rationality. I'm less sure about that. If anything, if, if, if there is valid reason for these immemorial usages, then how is private rationality not going to discover that? There's very much an anti-thought mentality here that he has in general. He's basically afraid of what other people will do with their thinking. But he certainly, obviously you can tell from what I read, he's very good at thinking and formulating things himself. He just doesn't see this this ability in anyone else, and he would bid them not use it and have faith in the prescription of just what people have always done and and also in their authorities even. Although he certainly questions authorities. So it, it's a little bit hard to understand. The indiv- and then he says, the individual is foolish, but the species is wise, Burke declared, which is mathematically impossible. You can't have, it, it, it's simply a political, as I said, it's a political version of the joke. We lose a little in each sale, but we make it up in volume. That's literally not possible. It's literally not possible for the individual to be foolish, yet the species be wise. The species is nothing but made up of individuals. You see? If the individual truly is that foolish, the species wouldn't exist. I mean, you couldn't have roads if the individual was foolish. The individual has to be basically capable of driving on a road 99.9% of the time without crashing in order to have roads, actually more than that. And that's how everything is. The individual has to be smart enough to figure out like the most basic shit or he won't be around. So it's not the species is wise. The species is pretty fucking dumb. The individual is smart enough to get by at whatever level we generally get by at. I mean, the species is just a freaking abstraction. It's just the the entire mathematics. It's the whole collection of individuals. It's not something more or above that. If some some someone finds some new way, we fall into it, like say karaoke or something. Does that mean it's good, or people just happen to like it? I don't know if it's good or not. You know, He's just making a little more out of not thinking in the tradition than, than, and, and prescription than is actually there. In general, just as your muscles will become stronger if you use them, your head will become stronger if you think. And how hard is it to think clearly? I mean, aren't we kind of done for if people can't even use their head to think and draw reasonable conclusions from, from their study? It's kind of frightening to think about. Are people really that dumb? I mean, why do they have such big freaking heads? that the passing of the head through the mother's hips is the biggest obstacle. Why is the head as big as the rest of the baby if we're not supposed to be thinking with it? I mean, it'll literally, it would turn us back into monkeys. He'd be happier if we had those little tiny nigger heads, you know? And eventually they devolved entirely to where we didn't even need them. We could live for days without our brains, like we're an insect or something. It really is a little bit disturbing and weird when you start thinking into what he's saying. It is okay. In politics, we do well to abide by precedent and precept and even prejudice. For the great mysterious incorporation of the human race has acquired a prescriptive wisdom 
far greater than any man's petty private rationality. Uh, I mean, I don't know about that. I would say that man's private rationality is generally going to discover what the other people have discovered. It may be that he has hasn't discovered some truth in some particular situation because he hasn't experienced it, but and therefore he could learn from other people. That that's true. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm not. I'm just saying that he's making rather a little thing of people's mind and their ability to use it to figure stuff out. I mean, the reasons for all these prescriptions and like you know, don't use someone else's toothbrush or don't sleep in the same sheets that someone else is sleeping and Tom Wolf talked about how we'd have to undergo the great relearning after the hippies reversed all this, you know, well he was talking about petty personal hygiene stuff at that point. We'd have to undergo when you when a bunch of people sleep in the same sheets, you start getting diseases and filth and lice and vermin transferred. You have to learn that there's a reason you don't do that. But still it's not like I, I don't see that the reason is is that opposed to the tradition. If the tradition has some solid foundations to it, you can pretty pretty easily discover why that is. You know. And yet most of the things people do traditionally are a lot of them, a lot more than Kirk would ever concede. He would never concede anything prescriptive what what was ever unwise or dangerous i mean people like wash chickens washing chickens doesn't do anything to get rid of salmonella but everyone does it everyone freaks about it and overcooks their meat because of their fear of trichnosis and pork or salmonella and the chicken but but those things don't help it trichnosis is actually extremely rare in pork nowadays and it's normally processed and washing does not get rid of the salmonella and the chicken that's just a myth. And so, you know, but everyone does it because everyone's all freaked out about that shit. And so, I think, it, it, to me, who has gotten farther than the white man? The white man got farther not by following tradition, but by questing, by daring to think his own thoughts, relying on, on the audacity of his authority. So you can see why Kirk ended up becoming a Catholic because. You can see why he would not have liked Protestantism with its focus on the individual man reading the Bible and drawing his own conclusions. And he would have preferred simply a prescriptive authority. But, uh, you know, Kirk, to be a little more serious of a man than he is, would have to take on his views and cite the, the other side of it and try to knock it down. The fact that people have misused, done bad things in the name of reason, or arrived at erroneous conclusions... He's not willing, basically, to have a debate. He's simply asserting stuff. Because there's a whole negative side to tradition that, that he that has not... Not supporting tradition and prescription the way he does doesn't turn you into some French rationalist who's going to kill everybody. That's really, basically, he's making almost a straw man argument. So there's lots of other ways to go. The religious mysticism he prefers may be prescriptive, but it's not good. Now we'll move on to the, the fourth. Fourth, conservatives are guided by their principle of prudence. Burke agrees with Plato that the state that in the statesman, prudence is chief among the virtues. Any public measure ought to be judged by its probable long-run consequences, not merely by temporary advantage or popularity. Liberals and radicals, the conservative says, are imprudent. 
for they dash at their objectives without giving much heed to the risk of new abuses worse than the evils they hope to sweep away. As John Randolph of Roanoke put it, Providence moves slowly, but the devil always hurries. Human society being complex, remedies cannot be simple if they are to be efficacious. The conservative declares that he acts only after sufficient reflection, having weighed the consequences. Sudden and slashing reforms are as perilous as sudden and slashing surgery. So yet again, a little contra contradiction you could see here is that, okay, it's good to be long view, and, but ultimately you're calculating probabilities. And the funny thing is, if you know, as I've always said, the way to teach yourself the true limits of your mind, apart from this garbage that Kirk is spewing, is speculate. And then when you lose, you'll discover that your opinion actually isn't worth as much as every man thinks his opinion is. And once you learn that, then you have the start actually building an opinion that is worth something but you can only do this by having the courage to risk something real usually money or could be something else i suppose some physical pain if you lost like in a fight you can only only learn where the edge is by by risking something and using your private rationality and even even kirk is implicitly conceding here that you have to use your mind for some things you try to do what's best in the long run but he's saying he even says it's probable long-run consequences you can't know all the cons consequences unintended consequences is a huge conservative what's the word not principle not bugaboo it's a huge point they make in relation to these social policy wonks, you want to just... Their, their point is that whenever you do something, it's going to have consequences you cannot foresee. So you have to be as careful in your calculating as you can be. While no, you, it's, it's a known unknown. <laughs> or it's known that you don't know what the unknown is, but you know there will be an unknown, and you know that it's usually going to be negative. You know, when Mao had his great anti-sparrow campaign and forced everyone to get up at 4 a.m. and bang and clang pots to keep the sparrows flying because they were uh, causing a problem, the unintended consequence, although you could say not entirely unpredictable, was that when they did defeat the horrible sparrow by causing it to die from exhaustion, from keeping it flying all these hours, it resulted in a massive uh, overpopulation of insects created its own problem that's an example of unintended consequences the slant-eyed idiot didn't intend that but that's what happened and that sort of uh oh shit i didn't realize attends everything that men do even if they're properly motivated i guess the, the point i would emphasize to kirk if you were sitting here is you know in the end you can't avoid the necessity of thinking either in the individual or in, or in the society. And what better check is there ultimately on these dangerous nuts than private thinking? And so it really is wrong and, and unwise of him to denounce petty private rationality. Like your ability to think for yourself is of no accord. You just you just go into the church and you let the, you let the priest handle your woes, and fondle your boy.
You know, that that's where his thinking leads. Okay, now he says, fifth, conservatives pay attention to the principle of variety. They feel affection for the proliferating intricacy of long-established social institutions and modes of life as distinguished from the narrowing uniformity and deadening egalitarianism of radical systems. For the preservation of a healthy diversity in any civilization, there must survive orders and classes, differences in material condition, and many sorts of inequality. The only true forms of equality are equality at the last judgment and equality before a just court of law. And he's wrong about that. That's what it took me. I, I accepted that without thinking about it for a long time, even as someone who is always atheistically inclined. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it made sense we're all equal in the eyes of God. No, it makes no more sense that we're equal in the eyes of God than anything else. And he says, uh, this is the fifth point, continuing it just a little more. The only true forms of equality are equality at the last judgment and equality before a just court of law. Where do you think the other ideas of equality came from, Russell? Where, where, where do you think they evolved out of? They evolved from that spiritual equality. That's why Christianity and liberalism are the same thing. Christianity made race and, and all those distinctions and orders you're talking about not matter because Christianity began as the, these nuts, these essentially these criminals and these social reprobates and people who felt alienated meeting around a table and talking about Jebus and becoming brothers and breaking bread over Jebus. So Christianity is inherently against this kinism. Uh, these people trying to say, oh, we have all these different classes in order. Christianity is against all that, man. It is, it is the very radicalism you're denouncing. In a lot of ways, Kirk is not particularly deep. He's certainly broadly learned, but his, his own thinking, maybe he has a self-interest in denouncing rationality and petty private Ration, petty, petty private reasoning. <laughs> uh, am I exuding a radical obnoxiousness? And not just from my armpits. <laughs> oh, it comes out of my mouth, too. <laughs> Woo yeah, petty private rationality. Give me a break, guy. Disgusting. Grown man. Yeah, you know, you know that's like I denounce reason because the the French radical terrorists said they were operating in the name of reason therefore rationality itself is suspect oh, I, mean, I could apply that a thousand times over to religion the things Christians have done you know reason doesn't belong to any any particular man or party it's, it's just an independent faculty that either accords with what's going on or it doesn't you know he says uh Society requires honest and able leadership, and if a natural and institutional differences are destroyed, presently some tyrant or host of squalid oligarchs, rich people, will create new forms of inequality. Well, I mean, society requires, a society would, doesn't require it, it would certainly benefit from it, unless he has some particular meaning of society other than a, a, some particular arrangement of people rather than a simple body of people. It's nice to have honest and able leadership. And again, you know, no bringing up of the Jews, no idea that he, he has not sophisticated his analysis or his knowledge to the point where he understands that human nature presupposes a human, humanity, but humanity is simply an abstract 
nothing more than biology unites them in the sense they can interbreed and produce new hominids. Beyond that, men fall into very different and irreconcilable racial categories. When I say irreconcilable, I mean they might be able to get along a little bit if there's enough force or if there's enough money and pussy to go around at the time, but generally they do not get along and they do fight. And he's not really taking any of this into account, you know. So we, when you know more specific biological truths and facts and see them reflected in history and see them fight it out subversively and subvertly and, and below the scenes in politics, it's a little harder to be interested in someone like Kirk who's stuck at this level that he thinks is a higher or deeper, higher and deeper, where he's just talking abstractly about man and his need for prescriptions and what have you. And you know all the Frankfurt School stuff. Kirk becomes a lot less interesting. In fact, he almost looks evasive when you know the kind of stuff Pierce would talk about and you know the biological facts about race, you're a little less likely to satisfy for blank, abstract claims about human nature. There's a human nature, but if you go into a black neighborhood and a white neighborhood, you'll find people acting an awful lot differently. Which one's a real human with the real human nature? But, you know, a healthy diversity, you're right, but it's not. It's generally not whites who are trying to prescribe this uniformity, although now they've joined forces with the Jews, and they want everyone, you know, just like that scene in Ride from the Devil. They built schoolhouses, and they put every farmer's son and tailor's daughter in them because they want, and that's why we're going to lose, because we don't care how they, how they live, whereas they want everyone to think and act the same way they do. The North is uncomfortable in its own skin. The moralizing sons of Puritans want to force everyone to live and act the way they do because that's the only right way, and everything else is morally evil. Well, that's not real. It's not real Christianity. Who are you to say it's not real Christianity? There's, there's no reconciling principle there. Well, all we know from is real Christians, and what they who call themselves Christians are as Christian as any other. There's, there's no way to. There's no way to reconcile it. There's no, there's no, other way. Like the, the Bible. Well, the Bible says a million things. As the queer Shakespeare observed, the devil can cite scripture for his purpose. And so can any queer. So can any religious fundamentalist. So can any quiverful lady. With, you know, a womb full of 19 fresh idiots. Anyone can cite the Bible to justify his course of action. Therefore, what the hell does it mean? It blows hot and cold, doesn't it? The only true form, there, there are no true forms of equality. A black man and a white man, the two races are not spiritually equal. Even two white men are spiritually equal. It's just some, something that's a, it's a form of, of, of crank, crankism that somebody dreamed up and, and was able to sell to others because it's superficially attractive, just the way political socialism is attractive. It's attractive to the losers, the people who can't make it on their own, the inferior people. And it's also attractive to a section of the right half of the bell curve who wants to mulk or sharp those leftist idiots or who favor a sort of headless quiescent passivism as Kirk often seems to verge on in him it's more of a withdrawing and thinking you're above all this it's beneath you to get actually get in there and fight 
you see, well, I have the long-term in view. I can't be bothered to actually risk myself and put myself in the situation. I have the long-term view in mind. And conservatives are, are love to depict themselves this way. That's why I was talking about that. The alt-frights love of that David Casper Friedrich. I think it's the name of the painter painting the guys. His foot up on the mountain crag. The cl- he's so high up, the clouds are below him. Looking down in the din and valley of human affairs from his godly position. This is always tempting to the conservative mindset. And it leads to the easy smear of others as not being as uh, far-seeing or as long-considering as statesmen they. They're just silly radicals with ideologies and orthodoxies and missing out on the un- the unintentional consequences their crazy nostrum policies are going to cause. So this, these are the psychological types and temptations we're talking about. All right, the sixth point. Conservatives are chastened by their principle of imperfectibility. Human nature suffers irremediably from certain grave faults. The conservatives know. Man, being imperfect, no perfect social order ever can be created. Because of human restlessness... Mankind would grow rebellious under any utopian domination and would break out once more in violent discontent. Or else expire of boredom. To seek for utopia is to end in disaster, the conservative says. We are not made for perfect things. All that we reasonably can expect is a tolerably ordered, just, and free society in which some evils, maladjustments, and suffering will continue to lurk. By proper attention attention to prudent reform, We may preserve and improve this tolerable order, but if the old institutional and moral safeguards of a nation are neglected, then the anarchic impulse in humankind breaks loose. The ceremony of innocence is drowned, he quotes. Probably probably Yeats or... uh, There's only two people they ever quote, really. The ideologue who who promises the perfection... The ideologues who promise the perfection of man and society have converted a great part of the 20th century world into a terrestrial hell but again he's not going deep enough he's not he's he's making man some indivisible thing because of his religious view that god created us all and that spiritually we're all equal he's unwilling to look at the racial differences between white and jew or white and black and he just lumps them all they're all men and you know we're over he's not observing that one race could be at war with others and 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 the problems in society could come as a direct result, not of generic human failure, but as a result of one ethnic group specifically attacking another. Using ideology, using the power of the mass media, and using its knowledge of actual human differences to thwart and ultimately genocide the other. He, he makes no mention or, or care for any of that. Now, and it's also when you when you say someone else is a utopian. I mean that's pretty darn close to a straw man, and it may just as well be that his idea is every bit as utopian. It acknowledges there will be some flaws. Is there any utopian out there who genuinely believes there won't be any flaws or problems in any society? What's more interesting than utopianism is to look at the racial, ethnic.
bases of the most radicals, the leaders of the radicals, the producers of the radical ideological systems out there and find that they're Jews and look at the misery they've created and attribute it directly to them. Hitler does that, but Kirk follows in the way of the leftist George Orwell and doesn't. He keeps it safely at the nature of, oh, all human nature is like this. And there's a reason that Orwell and Kirk are still taught in college, but they don't teach people like Hitler's Mein Kampf when he, he points out what the Jews are up to rather than what superficially it might seem deeper because it's it's more abstract and categorical, but really it's not because if you treat humans as undifferentiated mass of essentially sanguinary disposition and uh, prone to imperfectible, then you miss what's actually the specific differences between ethnic groups and the different drives they have. So th that's actually deeper than what he's talking about. He keeps it all safely philosophical and abstract, and we can agree with him at the level he says, yes, even if we had, the, the takeaway here for whites is even if we had an all-white society, there's always going to be a fair de degree of of unhappiness, but but yet no one ever claims it, it would be perfect if it were all white. They just claim we wouldn't have the racial problems that we have today. And you say, well, you get rid of the Jews, and you don't have blacks being sicked upon whites, causing you, you at one stroke you've avoided tens of thousands of rapes per year. And if you say, well, I'd be, I'd be willing to uh, just, frankly, get rid of all the blacks, ship them back to Africa or whatever, well, then that's when the conservative kicks in, and that to them is just as horrifying as anything ever done by blacks to white people. Because of their religion, they, they basically don't care about their race. Because to them, all, if all these creatures were created by God and are spiritually equal in his eyes, then racialism only makes sense from a material point of view because it, and a, and a cultural point of view not from a spiritual or political point of view you see what i'm saying because he's big on the preservations and prescriptions and continuity he can hardly be against the passing on of a biological continuity of, of genetic racialism or the cultural traditions that are created by races and passed on by them he can't be against that because that fits with what he's saying but in the other direction he also can't be in favor of uh say the radical solution that might be needed to identify an enemy of the race and to do something about it because it might involve things that are considered immoral and you just see that his his type cannot provide any kind of defense against attack by jews or jews using blacks remember that remark earlier about how all social questions are ultimately problems of private morality you see and that's yet another philosophical bias whereby the intellectual conservative doesn't want to see blacks as some kind of failed creation you know a defective product out of god's workshop he wants to see it well they're just not being moral enough this is the, the what's her name the black tennessee woman who wrote the book about white nationalism her solution well blacks just need to become more christian they need to follow the bible and that's ultimately more or less what the kirk types are forced to contend they can just say they can say and say accurately that the welfare state makes black problems worse by exacerbating it, it appeals to their worst appetites and encourages them to behave in ways that damage themselves and their community and if you took that away they would be better but they still wouldn't be like whites now the irony to me is that even from his own point of view 
because he just got done going off on on the principle of variety and the and 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 the different types of life and and against the narrow uniformity and deadening egalitarianism it's like hey buddy look in your own backyard and you say we're all spiritually equal and created by god that's a deadening egalitarianism right there but you support that one and that's why i say the claim that the enlightened the claim that Christianity and the Enlightenment are opposed is wrong. They're the same fucking thing. They're two manifestations of the same egalitarian impulse, universalist impulse. One size does not fit all. White men are not black. They don't have anything to do with them. They're not spiritually equal to them. So why why is it so good to be a spiritual egalitarian and a political inegalitarian? And what what happens over time was uh, they obviously... This was felt to be, by the left, a big problem, and they ultimately went with the logic of it, which is that either egalitarian is right in all these circumstances or it's wrong. The left says it's right. The right should be saying it's wrong. In spiritual stuff, just as, how can you say that your average white child is spiritually equal to your average nigger? That's utterly ridiculous. And the only way they can do it, well, God made them all, and he had some mysterious wisdom, and who are we to use our head and question it? Their way leads to this destructive liberalism that they that they that they write against. I think that's fairly clear. So they're not actually paying enough respect to the variety of the world. They they prefer the abstraction and the deadening egalitarianism. We're all spiritually equal. So you see, even on his own terms, you can get it, Kirk. The only true forms are of equality are equality at the last. What are you talking about, buddy? The last judgment. What you you. He, because someone someone wrote in some book that this thing is going to happen, some some kike, part of a war on whites, writes writes some garbage about some judgment. You can't take stuff like that seriously. It's not serious stuff. It's science fiction. Oh, okay. They're going. Oh, there's going to be a last year. How do you know that, buddy? Oh, there I go again, relying on petty private rationality. Uh, yeah. Well. I rely on petty private rationality not to walk off the edge of a cliff, too, buddy. It seems to work pretty well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the, the wild risk of applying it to your wacky Semitic cult and see where I come out. And I come out somewhere that's damn good. What I have is better than what, what the Christians have. So why would I want what the Christians have? And that's what I tell them whenever they come to my door. I'm like, atheism has never lied to me. Never told me shit's true that isn't true, but Christianity has. I've seen the pernicious effects Christianity has had on the character of people in my own family. Very, very direct pernicious effect from it from teaching people that stuff that is not real is real very very bad thing it's the worst thing that ever happened to the white race but because it's traditional people like kirk would stick with it but i'm showing you time after time where the the contradictions in his own philosophy stuff he hasn't puzzled out because he hasn't really thought about it perhaps because it's just prescriptional spiritual equality really It's like dog psychiatry. What a scam. I'd like to get in on that one. Spiritual equality between a white man and a nigger. Give me a break. What is that broad's name? I want to keep on saying Carol Alt, but Carol Alt was a model, not a, not a black fake law professor. Carol Swain. Swain? Is it, there's a judge around here named Carol, named, some chick named Swain. I always get them mixed up. Swain or Swain? 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 Something like that. Anyway, she wrote a long book on white nationalism where she utterly avoided all, all the significant philosophical questions. But her solution for blacks to become more je- bigger, better Jeebus worshippers, and then they'll stop all that nasty violence. Yeah, good luck with that. 
uh, let's see. See, so, so just like Orwell, he's saying the ideologues who promised the perfection of man and society have converted a great part of the 20th century world into terrestrial. And I know he would lump in Nazis with communists there. He would never talk about the Jewish nature of communism or that it was specifically a Jewish attack on whites. No, he's, he's safely removed to a level of abstraction at which he can pretend he sees deeper and longer than other people. It's very similar to the way Orwell did it in his books. He, he never identified he never made communism into it or his totalitarianism into a ethnic specific system it's supposed to be generalized and abstract but it actually takes greater courage and analytical power to go into the specifics of it as hitler did in mein Kampf than what orwell did i've often thought someone and i'm not really the right person should write a long comparison a literary political com- no a political comparison between orwell and hitler and come up with who is a better analyst. There's a reason they teach Orwell and they don't teach Mein Kampf. And the reason is Hitler is far more pertinacious and point positive than Orwell was. Hitler was a better analyst than Orwell. Hitler analyzing how the how the Jews put their propaganda out and what their, their aims are is better than what you find in 1984 in Animal Farm. It's also of greater relevance because you see it operating today still. Although I'll give Orwell points for his concepts of how the Jews like to prune language down and and the concept, you know, they, they eventually, all opposition to any Jewish agenda item becomes hate, the ultimate simplification. I mean, Christ, I just quoted for something I'm going to use in my next on language column. I was reading a book about LBJ written by a, an anti back in 1964. And back then they were they were using hate as, as a shallow deprecation as this particular author called it. So see, they don't have any new tricks. They just repeat the old ones. Whatever you find them doing today, you can guarantee they were doing decades ago. Okay, now. Eh. Seventh, conservatives are persuaded that freedom and pro- property are closely linked. I think that's true. The more freedom and money, you, the more money and property you have, the freer you are in an in a effective, functional, real sense because you can pick up and travel somewhere. And a society that protects that freedom and allows people to use their ability to accumulate that property is a society that uh, is, it will be successful and good because people can have faith that the, the money is real. It's not counterfeit. You're not going to have a bunch of Jews inflating the currency and then using the, the fresh money they've counterfeited to hand it over to their friends at Goldman Sachs. You can have faith that your money, your work will be remunerated with dollars that have full purchasing power. And then if you want to get ahead and you act the right way, you can get ahead materially. That's how society is supposed to operate and would operate in the white society I have in mind, where there would be no, no, no person would be allowed to operate a counterfeiting machine. There would be currency competition, not the government issuing fiat money and telling you just, oh, trust us, don't use anything else. You're going to use our money. That is far too great a temptation. And there, what Kirk says does apply because men are inherently greedy, avaricious. They want something unearned for themselves 
if there is a counterfeiting machine, they are going to use it, whether they're whites or Jews. So there's something racialists could learn from. Because there are plenty of racialists out there who think it just you just need to get white men in charge. Now, which white men? Eric Glebe? If Eric Glebe is in charge, is he not going to use the counterfeiting machine? There is no new Aryan man any more than there was a new Soviet man, any more than there's a new Ju- Judeo-Ameriquan man. So, seventh, conservatives are persuaded that freedom and property are closely linked. I agree with that. Separate proper, separate property from private possession, and Leviathan becomes a master of all. Leviathan is Hume's great centralized state, sort of the dungeon master. Upon the foundation of private property, great civilizations are built. The more widespread is the possession of private property, the more stable and productive is the commonwealth. And there's more wealth. The smaller the government, the greater the private wealth, the greater the freedom. is. The, the rich people can use their money to subsidize artists. You know, people, people who do things that aren't inherently commercial or, but are still valuable. Not everything has a, a monetary value, but it doesn't mean it's not worth something. But when you have a, you basically, you either have families and liberty and, and leisure and art, or you have giant centralized government. And today in the U.S., we have giant centralized government. Like everybody that has two or three people at their family table that are invisible, that they pay for with all their taxes, that they don't have then to spend on their own family, you see. So this is when I get called a Nazi purely because I criticize Jews. That's that's all it takes. Although Nazism actually... doesn't mean that and isn't inherently concerned it's necessarily but not inherently concerned with with jews is something it's something different but i won't go into that at this time but i'm not a nazi i have my own views and they are when you need decentralized power i don't like people calling the shots from central command headquarters in dc and dictating what happens in utah as variegated places as utah you know missouri Southern California, they all have Oregon. They all have their own their own quirks. They know what they need in their places. They don't need dictatorship from some central spot on the East Coast. Okay. Economic leveling, conservatives maintain, is not economic progress. That's true. Getting and spending are not the chief aims of human existence, but a sound economic basis for the person, the family, and the commonwealth is much to be desired. Absolutely, absolutely, no doubt about it. An all-white society would probably be pretty rich, at least middle class, safe, physically. You know, you wouldn't have to lock all your doors all the time. You could you could focus on whatever arts and science you were interested in, or you could go abroad and quest and explore. Who knows? It would just have a hot, much higher lowest common denominator than what we have in a racially mixed, Jew-operated tyranny. Sir Henry Maine in his village communities put strongly the case for private property as distinguished from communal property. Nobody is at liberty to attack several property and to say at the same time that he values civilization. So a guy he cites as a conservative is saying like, when he says several property, he means like private property. He's saying anyone who's, who's in favor of nationalizing stuff is anti-civilization the history of the two cannot be disentangled 
for the institution of several property, that is private property, has been a powerful instrument for teaching men and women responsibility, for providing motives to integrity, for supporting general culture. So if they have a family, they have a farm, they have material items they own, they have something, they have an investment, they have something to protect, they're going to be, they're going to have every possible incentive to be the kind of long-thinking, long-term planning, far-seeing statesman that the wise and virtuous, i.e. the properly educated man, can be loved. At least they'll have every incentive to be that, whether or not they can actually carry it out. You're going to tend to get better men when you have private property and liberty for the individual heads of, of families, the patriarchs of these clans that together compose a civilization. Whereas our present view is that civilization comes from the top down and we pay half of our money into D.C. and they, they make us a better people by investing in endless foreign wars and giant colonies of niggers at home. Now, it might seem to you and me that that's actually not such good things. Like attacking people for no reason has never been... There's no great body of widely respected philosophers that that emphasize the value of endlessly not minding your own business and attacking other people for no reason. There's no substantial thought behind that school. I mean, and not even Nietzsche and his wilder ideas thought that just attacking people at random because a bunch of Jews running your society thought it was a good idea was was a good thing. No one thinks that. No one thinks that building giant colonies of feral niggers with white earner tax money is a good idea, except Jews who were overtly intend to destroy white society by doing just that. You see. So, and we should we should incorporate here, what's the opposite of property rights? Human rights. I mean, it's just like gun control. Gun control is the right of the man to, white man to self-defense. Property rights is the right of the white man to own something, to keep what he earned. So when they when they talk about gun control, they're talking about taking away your right to defend yourself. When they talk about human rights, they're talking about your right to keep your own property. Because human rights is always the claims of the mud against the white who earned something. And through a bogus historical narrative that's taught in public schools funded with a white man's money, they'll teach that he stole, he got everything he got on the backs of blacks. They're the ones really responsible for creating American systems. And when he went abroad, he just stole all their stuff. And that's the reason he's rich and they're not. So basically they've created the intellectual justification for the eventual enslavement leading to genocide of the white man by claiming that he didn't deserve or earn anything. He stole everything he had from someone else. That's how dangerous this shit is. They really have set it up so that blacks are justified in doing literally everything up to and including the genocide of whites because everything we did, are, or got was taken from them at their expense. The exact opposite of the truth. To the extent most blacks are even alive, they owe their lives. They owe their very respiration to the white man, his medicine and technology. They're free riders in our civilization. It's something they could never create, let alone sustain, as we see in Detroit. But the Jew who actually controls things won't let that truth out because it's dangerous to him. He's a, Jews are extremely dangerous, and that's why I say they need to be exterminated. There's no other way to treat Jews other than to treat them as vermin on two feet. They intend our genocide. We must counter-genocide them. There's no policy towards Jews that can be effective except counter-genocide. 
Yeah, people say uh, I ain't advocating nothing in terms of from one day to the next. I'm, what I'm talking about is an intellectual position that you will achieve when you truly understand what's going on. And somehow we together have to come together and form vehicles, form an organization that can protect whites and ultimately just simply wipe them out, wipe out our enemy the way they are trying to wipe us out. You know, somehow that part always gets lost. You know, they actually have power and try to wipe us out. But that doesn't matter if I say that they should be counter exterminated. Somehow the focus is all on what I say should be done rather than what they are doing. Do you appreciate that tiny little infinitesimal side mock crack small difference? They are doing it. I'm saying we should counter it in response. What a radical, wacky notion. And again, these whites who've been trained by men like Kirk to keep their head down and not do any actual thinking and not look at the, not see where things are heading. Well, this is the result. This is prepares people to be genocided. Who are you to use your head to see patterns and recognize shapes and holes and tendencies? And who are you to break down man beyond man into different and competing and irreconcilable races and notice that they have conflicting irreconcilable interests? And notice that 99% of all God's species are dead extinct and wonder why well that couldn't happen among humans too of course it could of course it could that's petty private rationality talking you just do it like everybody else has ever done it that'll be good enough for your kind don't worry your pretty little head about it but the the key is when you hear human rights they mean the mud's right to your property that's what you want to keep in mind and yes property is linked to freedom because the more property out there and the widely it's, it's, it's spread, the more political power is out there and decentralized on that. It's like everybody owning a gun. Whenever an armed society is a polite society, as Heinlein said, the science fiction writer, well, a society in which a lot of people have property is a society that's harder to control because there's more money out there. It's, it's just it's more difficult, whereas if you go to D.C., it's all built up because all the money and the power is there now, and they dispense largesse to their satraps around the country and everybody else has to just scramble to get by with whatever's left over that's not the ideal society ideal society is not controlled from a central point it may require some central administration by way of defense but beyond that the power centers are local and numerous and in that way you do preserve the diversity and the variety and the interesting differences the valuable differences we don't all have to think the same way. We shouldn't even want to all think the same way. There's something wrong if someone's trying to force everyone to think the same way. And you don't have to like it merely as I do for aesthetic reasons. I think I'm right about everything, of course. But so does everyone, whether they admit it or not. But I believe my views can win in a fair competition. I don't seek to enforce them on people through the law. I seek to laugh down people I think are wrong. Or simply describe where they're wrong and persuade them with compelling reasons and rhetoric. You see the difference? Satire has courts too, not just the law. They're far more civilized. But in the Jew society, everybody must be forced to think the same way and beaten, suppressed down if they don't. And as what they propose is anti-white, hence against the interests of the majority, the Jew can only succeed by being tyrannical. He can hardly persuade them to do something, most of them anyway, to do something that's against their own interests. 
Yet somehow he achieves that. He achieves that by controlling all the official authorities because as, as Kirk almost notices, most people are blind, dumb, and deaf, and they simply carry on doing He thinks it's a good thing. <coughs> Far less clear to me that it's a good thing that so few people think. <laughs> but he's advising everyone not think and ju- just carry on doing what your ancestors did. Oh, and then, of course, he, he covers his tracks. Well, you know, it changes the means of our preservation, of course. So we, we do have to change. And, of course, there's no way to avoid thinking. Thinking is like fucking shitting, eating thinking is part of what humans do and there, there's no you can't have some opinion about whether it's good or bad it's something we do or going to do we do necessarily you can't even draw some general conclusion oh you really shouldn't think about shit you should just do what everyone else does and not really worry about it the unexamined life is best worth living i guess is kirk's position contrary to socrates All right. Well, just to finish off that little point, he says, uh, for the institution of several property, that is private property, has been a powerful instrument for teaching men and women responsibility for providing motives to integrity, for supporting general culture, for raising mankind above the level, uh, level of mere drudgery, for affording leisure to think and freedom to act, to be able to retain the fruits of one's labor, to be able to see one's work made permanent, to be able to bequeath one's property to one's posterity, to be able to rise from the natural condition of grinding poverty to the security of enduring accomplishment, to have something that is really one's own. These are advantages difficult to deny. And think the property tax denies that because it's always taken 1% to 2% of the value of your property per year. So you're putting hurdles in there. You don't truly own it. You're renting it from the government. You say, no, no, that's not true. Well, then don't pay your taxes and see what happens. The conservative acknowledges that the possession of property fixes certain duties upon the possessor. He accepts these moral and legal obligations cheerfully. Okay, all that is is completely right. Eighth, conservatives uphold voluntary community quite as they oppose involuntary collectivism. Again, that's that's solid, and that's what I believe. Private voluntary arrangements. Although Kirk talks down the libertarians, they've they've gone farther in discussing and thinking about that stuff than his his kind has. He says, although Americans have been attached strongly to privacy and private rights, they also have been a people conspicuous for a successful spirit of community. In a genuine community, the decisions most directly affecting the lives of citizens are made locally and voluntarily. Amen. Some of these functions are carried out by local political bodies, others by private associations. So long as they are kept local and are marked by the general agreement of those affected, they constitute healthy community. Okay, makes sense. But when these functions pass by default or usurpation to centralized authority, then community is in serious danger. Then you're just, you know, serfs. On a collective farm. Whatever is beneficent and prudent in modern democracy is made possible through cooperative volition. If, then, in the name of abstract democracy, the functions of community are transferred to distant political direction, why real government by the consent of the governed gives, gives way to a standardizing process hostile to freedom and human dignity. And that's what we've seen. We saw in Brown versus Board of Education, you know, first of all, idea of central or public schooling is is 
opposed to what he's talking about. But second of all, the feds top down are forcing whites to accept feral blacks into their classrooms when they don't want it. That should not be a decision made by rich Jews on the Supreme Court thousands of miles away from the people it actually affects. That's their business. Those are their lives. That's what dictatorial control is. Leaving aside the fact that it was purely an illegal maneuver. They simply took existing settled law and reversed it in a way completely antithetical to what Kirk is talking about. He's talking about continuity. There's nothing less continuous than taking the the basis of, of, of social continuity, which would be settled law, law based on precedence per the English common law, and then just literally reversing what it says. Because that fits your social policy that you want to impose on whites for genocidal racial reasons. There's nothing less conservative than that. And yet, and then the conservative idiot, rather than doing his own thinking, decided just to follow the custom of doing what the Supreme Court says. And it truly is that. It's just a custom. I went through, read my review of Buchanan to find out the fact that the Supreme Court has no final right of review of the constitutionality of anything. Anyone along the way could have stood up to the court and said, no, what you're doing is illegal. We're not going to enforce it. But none of them did. So you see, Kirk's two principles of, are opposed of, of local control versus respecting authority and, and not using your head. So if you're just going to follow authority, that's what's going to happen. You're going to let someone far away dictate your local affairs or you're going to let your priest you know, fondle your kid because, hey, the priest knows better. He's closer to God. Why would I worry about reading stuff and thinking and figuring it out for myself? We've got priests for that. Why would I need to worry about reforming my soul when I've got Jesus to die for my sins? Eighth. Okay, well. Yeah, it gives way to a standardizing process hostile to freedom and human dignity. That's exactly what we see today. If, if, you, if you have certain beliefs and say you don't want to sell a cake to sexual deviants, well, tough shit. The federal government is forcing you to. That, that is an affront to your human freedom and human dignity, for sure. For a nation is no stronger than the numerous little communities of which it is composed. A central administration or a corps of select managers and civil servants, like think of people like Eric Holder and the other criminals of the Department of Justice, however well-intentioned and well-trained, <laughs> cannot confer justice and prosperity and tranquility upon a mass of men and women deprived of their old responsibilities. The experiment has been made before and has been disastrous. It is the performance of our duties in the community that teaches us prudence and efficiency and charity. That means you have to let people carry their own weight. In order to be men and women, you have to have the freedom to make these decisions. And, the res- and you have to accept the responsibility of making these decisions. When you try to run people like they're part of an ant farm, you're denying their white manliness. This is the thing. I think everything he's saying is right, but it needs to be put in a racial context. This bad stuff that's being done is being done not out of perversion of some generic human nature. It's being done by one race's assault on another. And he just doesn't take any of that. If he understands it, he doesn't ever write about it or take it into account officially and publicly. That's why I'm amending it and helping him, Mr. Helper, figure out what's going on. This is why Jews have essentially 
gelded the white race of its adulthood. This is why they've tried to turn it into something that likes Adam Sandler movies. And is a perpetual man. All these movies about man children or men who won't grow up. Well, this this all fits what they're trying to create. They don't need people doing the deep thinking. They don't want people doing the deep thinking. They don't want people controlling their own lives. They want people who need government services and who worship the government and agree with it about diversity. They don't want you making any kind of local decision that affects your own life. They have all the answers for you. Even if their answer is your genocide, the ending of your kind which they manifestly desire. And the closer they think they get to it, the more openly brazen they are in laughing about it and enjoying it and appreciating it. They love it when whites are raped and murdered. And they're almost to the point where they don't even hide it. Think about that. Turning whites from adults, serious adults, into sports fans was a great triumph, turning whites from sober, self-contained family men into 40-year-old man whores is a great achievement for them in line with their Frankfurt School doctor. There's no anti-Semitism when these idiots are out at bars and they're in their 40s and still thinking like not even teenagers used to think when whites ran America because that whole creation of the teenage Porky's identity is completely of Jewish manufacture. People used to be simply babies and they grew into adults. The whole idea of adolescence as a market segment to be created and manufactured for political and commercial reasons is Jewish. Did you know that? What else don't you know? Ninth, the conservative perceives the need for prudent restraints upon power and upon human passions. And the problem with Kirk is that, like so many others, he believes this can come from paper when pretty much all the smart guys end up realizing it basically doesn't. You either got to defend it or someone else will eventually ignore what's written on the paper. Sobern figured that out at the end of his life. And what you want to read there is Herman Hopp, uh, The End of Democracy, or his book about democracy. I forget. I may have the title wrong. Politically speaking, power is the ability to do as one likes, regardless of the wills of one's fellows. Uh, A state in which an individual or a small group are able to dominate the wills of their fellows without check is a despotism, whether it is called monarchical or aristocratic or democratic. When every person claims to be a power under himself, then society falls into anarchy. Anarchy never lasts long, being intolerable for everyone, and contrary to the ineluctable fact that some persons are stronger and more clever than their neighbors... To anarchy, there succeeds tyranny or oligarchy in which power is monopolized by very few. That's dubious, but we'll let it go. The conservative endeavors to so limit and balance political power that anarchy or tyranny may not arise. In every age, nevertheless, men and women are tempted to overthrow the limitations upon power for the sake of some fancied temporary advantage. That's true. They will not be bound by paper. Have they the best constitution that could be written? It is characteristic of the radical that he thinks power he thinks of power as a force for good so long as the power falls into his hands. That's true of very many white nationalists. Big government is not the problem. Bad government is the problem. We just need to get good men in there. No, bad government, as the libertarians have discovered, they're far in advance of white, white nationalists on this stuff. The, the thing itself is the problem. But... Uh, Anyway, in the name of liberty, the French and Russian revolutionaries abolished the old restraints upon power, but power cannot be abolished. It always finds its way into someone's hands. 
That power which the revolutionaries had thought oppressive in the hands of the old regime becomes many times as tyrannical in the hands of the radical new masters of the state. He would say the Tsar versus Lenin's USSR or the Ancien Regime versus the Jacobins. Knowing human nature for a mixture of good and evil. Well, see, that, that's the thing. The conservatives does not put his trust in mere benevolence. Constitutional restrictions, political checks and balances, adequate enforcement of the laws, the old intricate web of restraints upon will and appetite, these the conservative approves as instruments of freedom and order. A just government maintains a healthy tension between the claims of authority and the claims of liberty. That, that makes sense. I think you could put it a little differently nowadays. You say, look, paperwork's fine. You know, you can have a good constitution. The U.S. Constitution is fine. But people can easily find ways around it. And Joe Soberman came to say at the end of his career that the horrible thing is not what people do outside the Constitution, it's what men can do inside of it. So that no, no matter what is written, someone can find a judge who will misinterpret it, no matter how clearly it's written. They'll still try to revise and rewrite it. So ultimately it depends on the disposition of the men who are going to obey to obey those checks and limitations that Kirk is talking about. Or it depends on the men under those men who, and their willingness to defend themselves against any usurpations that might rise up. And that's where it is. Like the Clive and Bundy thing recently is a good example. Get a few hundred men's out there with guns waving around and the government decided to back off. Normally it would not back off. Why it did there, I don't even fully know. But but that's what it comes down to. If you're willing to take a gun and defend your rights, then you have rights. You have The way I always put it, you have a right to all the pie you can cram in your mouth. Rice talk is a bunch of blather because there's no enforcing agent except you. Therefore, you are the source of your rights. You have the right to all the pie you want in your mouth. God says you can only have two pieces of pie. Say wrong. My mouth ate three pieces of pie. What are you going to do about that? And he'll stand by and do nothing. Because that's all God ever does is nothing. So mine is the God-given right. God-given right. God never defends the right. right. A given right doesn't mean a goddamn thing. It's like someone praying for you. Doesn't mean a damn thing. Now, a God-defended right, that actually means something. Someone says, Clive and Bundy, I'm going to pray that the feds back off. He goes, well, thanks, buddy. Go piss up a rope. Now he says, Clive and Bundy, I'm going to bring a gun. My wife, and she's going to bring her gun, and we're going to bring our friends with some guns, and we're going to defend your rights to, the, to graze on this land. That actually means something. There's no God-defended rights. Even, even the god Godiots admit that. Oh, God, Gary, get fuck God. Someone who has all the power in the world and stands by and does nothing, you're going to admire and worship that? When you don't even know for a fact it exists, you're an idiot. And Kirk is classed among these because he thinks that same way. Look, you can write anything on, the, on, the, on a piece of paper and someone, because people are perverse, will just choose to interpret it the opposite way. And that someone may be on the Supreme Court, as likely as not, or on a federal court. And what are you going to do about it? If you're not going to do anything about it, then it stands. So paper will never protect you. And that is what all the smart people come to understand at the end of their lives. That's why all human is basically slightly stylized animal bluffing and fighting. Yeah, sometimes in the minor shit, there will be some justice and there will be reasonably fair actions. But on the bigger stuff... It's generally going to go to the crooks and the liars. 
who have boldness and brazenness on their side when the, when the good men are going to basically too busy doing working and, and being honest to, to do anything about it but but yet they're doing something about it is the only way they will obtain any justice or vindicate any rights because it damn sure ain't coming from God he has a perfect track record of doing nothing when it comes to this sort of stuff not even his fans can really deny that alright finally we get to point number 10 And you you out there who are saying you want six hours, I'm sorry. I can only give you a little more than four today. <laughs> I'm going to tap out there. Oh, Christ, I had no idea. Tenth, the thinking conservative understands that permanence and change must be recognized and reconciled in a vigorous society. Um, whether he understands that or not doesn't really matter. The conservative is not opposed to social improvement, although he doubts whether there is any such force as mystical progress with a Roman P at work in the world. When a society is progressing in some respects, usually it is declining in other respects. The conservative knows that any healthy society is influenced by two forces, which Samuel Taylor Coleridge called its permanence and its progression. The permanence of a society is formed by those enduring interests and convictions that give us stability and continuity. Without that permanence, the foundations of the great and deep are broken up, society slipping into anarchy <clears throat> the progression in the society is that spirit and that body of talents which urge us on to prudent reform and improvement without that progression of people stagnate therefore the intelligent conservative endeavors to reconcile the claims of permanence and the claims of progression Again, how are you going to do that without using your petty private rationality that he's demeaned and, and, and spoken against above, right? See, there's a contradiction there. Therefore, the intelligent conservative endeavors to reconcile the claims of permanence and the claims of progression. Okay, that's fine. He thinks that the liberal and the radical, blind to the just claims of permanence, would endanger the heritage bequeathed to us in an endeavor to hurry into some dubious terrestrial paradise. Well, you know, okay, that's great. But now how many people, you know, couldn't they say that about you, that you desire some terrestrial paradise too? I mean, this is a matter partly of degree and partly it's a matter of just the characterization rather than some inherent thing in liberalism. Liberalism has been tested and found wrong. That's what's wrong with it. It doesn't work. It makes things worse for people. The conservative, in short, favors reasoned and temperate progress. Well, everybody favors reasoned and temperate progress. Who would say, I'm against reasoned and temperate progress? He is opposed to the cult of progress, whose votaries believe that everything new necessarily is superior to everything old. Well, that's a bit of an overstatement, but you definitely see what he means in liberalism, where they're always looking for the next thing to be outraged about just as in music they're always looking for the next band nobody but them has ever heard of and uh, you, you see the mentality that he's against and he's right to be against it change is essential to the body social the conservative reasons just as is essential to the human body 
just as it is essential to the human body. A body that has ceased to renew itself has begun to die, but if that body is to be vigorous, the change must occur in a regular manner, harmonizing with form and the nature of that body. Otherwise, change produces a monstrous growth, a cancer, which devours its host. Okay. The conservative takes care that nothing in society should ever be wholly old and that nothing should ever be wholly new. I'm not sure how that could be. This is the means of the conservation of a nation, quite as it is the means of conservation of a living organism. You know, in the way that your skin and your cells all renew themselves. Just... Uh, just how much change a society requires and what sort of change depend on the circumstances of an age and a nation. And, of course, no one will agree on those, so you have to use your petty private rationality to figure it out. I'd like to see him admit. Such, then, are the ten principles that have loomed large during the two centuries of modern conservative thought. Other principles of equal importance might have been discussed here. The conservative understanding of justice, for one or the conservative view of education, but such, subjects, such subjects, time running on, I must leave to your private investigation. The great line of demarcation in modern politics, Eric Vogelin used to point out, is not a division between liberals on one side and totalitarians on the other. No, on the one side of the line are all those men and women who fancy that the temporal order is the only order, and that material needs are their only needs and that they may do as they like with a human patrimony. On the other side of that line are all those people who recognize an enduring moral order in the universe, a constant human nature, and high duties toward the order spiritual and the order temporal. So he would say that even though there might be an 80% overlap in the prescriptive policies that he and I would support, there's a more fundamental difference between us, which is that I, as an atheist, uh, and he as, as a Christian humanist or a Christian, are on the radical, radically different sides of the, of the most important division. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But uh, his type and his ilk and, and the way that they, they... I don't think there's anything conservative about supposing there's a transcendent moral order given that there's, there's no evidence that there is other than a book put together by people who in every recorded instance have advised and and pushed on the white race stuff that is demonstrably destructive to it no but that but the bible really is the good book and the stuff in there really is good for people even though you can see it with your own eyes that it it, it encourages people in the most deceptive sort of destructive fallacies and then you've got this conservative in line with that saying, oh, don't rely on your petty private rationality, even though he completely relies on his own petty private rationality. Well, maybe he fancies he's one of those giants, unlike the rest of us who are dwarves, who are not to be trusted to use our brains. You know, would you tell a dwarf, well, don't use your muscles because they're just tiny, weak little things compared to normal-sized people. Even dumb people, you need to use their brains to be fully human. And you know what? If you a little bit of thought that's accurate is fully effective. You don't have to think deeper, longer, harder than other people. You just have to think that's the beautiful thing about reason. It only leads to one conclusion on stuff, unlike religion, which leads anywhere. That's why there have been so many religious wars, because it can't be reconciled, because it's all just a burning in the chest. It's all just thing that people have made up and imagined. And hence, there's no way to prove they're right other than to kill the other guy. Whereas no one argues about whether ice freezes at 32 degrees. You don't hear about scientific wars because there's something actually there. And to attempt to put 
the fundamental crime of the people of Russell Kirk's ilk is that they try to put revelation or their private burning in their chest they feel about Jebus, this Jewish science fiction character. They try to put that on par with actual evidence and real world reality that is science and just simply objective reality. And that's why, yeah, there is a pretty fundamental divide between us and he's on the wrong side of it. I'm on the right side. And from the spirit that I exhibit and describe and talk about, we we have the only basis from which successful opposition to Jewry can be sustained. Kirk's Christians have had 2,000 years to deal with Jews, and they've utterly failed. They failed so badly the Jews don't even need to destroy them. They simply use them. Nazism, they had to attack and destroy. They have no tolerance at all. Christianity, they just mock and use because it's stupid. It's basically just a game for for adults to play. It doesn't lead anywhere. It's just something to keep the left half of the bell curve. Most people happy and ignorant and stupid, believing in stuff that doesn't exist. Oh, well, you don't need to read any other books if you have a good book. That's your fundamental Christian attitude. You don't need any other books. If it was true and it mattered, it would be in the good book. You see, that that, that attitude is why, why our, our people have not been able to get on top of the Jew. They need to be a little bit harder, think a little bit deeper, be a little bit tougher. We can hew to higher standards than Kirk is capable of providing us with. We don't have to talk about human nature when we can talk about specific races and their different characters. There's really an underestimating of science and technology is one theme that runs clearly through all the right. And we don't have to fall victim to that. Anyway, I could go on some, but it's already been over four hours. So after four hours is probably uh, about a good time to wrap up. But what better than to spend a somewhat overcast near rainy day than discussing Russell Kirk, the number one man in modern conservatism. And I'm sure we'll discuss him other times. I believe I've discussed his conservative mind on Radio Astina in the past. But I had this book and I had never fully read it until the last couple of months. And again, the book I was reading out of today, well, I'll, uh, was a Decadence and Renewal in the Higher Learning, 1978, an episodic history of the American University and College since 1953. So he kind of covered the first, pretty much 1950 up to 1980, he covered. And it's it's got a lot of good stuff, but I hit a lot of the high points in it. And then we discussed his 10 Principles of Conservatism, and we'll keep going back to that. Because we are at war for the mind and soul of normal white Americans. We want to enlist them in our fight against the Jews who are trying to do in our race and who devoutly need to be counter-genocided as they try to genocide us. And I always put it like that, counter-genocide. We should counter-genocide the Jews who are trying to genocide us. And those of you who listen to the end, I want to thank you for staying with me. I record the show the Pure Meat Pure Gold podcast, at least Pure Meat Pure Gold show at least once a week. Sometimes I do it two times a week. This intellectual stuff, it's very hard to do it uh, limited. You kind of It kind of takes a little time to get to. When I do more comedy and music, as I do many times, it's a little bit less. But generally, I like to go hour and a half to two hours range. Today, we went about double that. And... Uh, you know what, what what better is there to do this is good and necessary stuff i wish someone was talking to me about this stuff when i was in college i sure as hell would have got a lot more 
out of college than I did get out of it. But uh, I'll be back at least by next Wednesday. Sometimes I put it off till Thursday, but I'll do another show next week, if not sooner. Uh, once again, Alex Linder, vnnforum.com, Alex Linder 5 on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and I think I will end with a song. And because we're talking about a religious man, I'm going to sing my original composition, <coughs> Shake a Snake for Jesus. It'll be a good and healthy ending for us today. It's sort of a reward for sticking through the four hours of what I hope is some good quality intellectual discussion. Put down your rake, pick up a snake. Now give that snake a healthy shake. Yeah, shake a snake for Jesus, my friends, my friends. Oh, shake a snake for Jesus, my friends. If it's got coils and you've got hands for this small act, don't need amends. Yeah, shake a snake for Jesus, my friends, my friends. Shake a snake for Jesus, my friends. Timber rattler, cotton mouth, well, my blood pressure's headed south. A king snake or a corn snake just won't do to satisfy the Lord divine. Of poison snakes, the only kind to demonstrate your faith is pure, clean through. So, shake a snake for Jesus, my friends, my friends. You shake a snake for Jesus, my friends. They lie upon the dusty ground, and yet they never let us down. So make your hands a helping hoisting zoo. Woo-hoo. The Lord won't bite, so why do you think different? His pit viper fool. Shake a snake for Jesus, my friends, my friends. Just lift and raise and elevate and praise and even ulate. Yeah, shake a snake for Jesus. Forever, ever, ever loving Jesus. Yeah, shake a snake for Jesus, my friends. Good day.